0: This
1: is a more-than-just podcast production.
2: Welcome to podcast, Season 5, Episode 7. My name is Tim Mitchell. I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jonathan Kulan in Mississauga, Ontario. Hello there! We also have Jaime Lippis Jr. on the line in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? All right. Cool. Well, we missed a week. Let's let's jump right into the fact check, because I don't, yeah, this is pretty much most of the
1: fact check. I'm here at first, actually, with the fact check. It's been a while since I've listened to the episode. I think it actually made it into the episode. We were talking about uh, Elon Musk's impending uh, acquisition of Twitter. I had made the comment that, like, oh, you never really know with this guy. It's kind of hard to tell from one day to the next. But I said, there's uh, that Delaware court that is uh, not putting up with anybody's tomfoolery. They are very quick and efficient with these sorts of, um, you know, business to business sort of uh, um, cases. And it is the Delaware Court of Chancery is court in question. So you don't want to mess around with them. You might as well just, uh, you know, play nice with whoever it is. Because they're they're not going to take any time at all. You're not going to be able to stretch out the the case. You're not going to be able to move the do- the dates. It's like all fuss. Sorry, all uh, no fuss, no muss kind of a uh, approach to to business law. Okay, I'm lost. What's the context?
2: <laughs> like what what is, it, what is the Delaware Court? chancery
1: saying that is where the the court case occurred? And unlike some other places, uh, not picking on anyone, just. You don't have other places that are quite as fast and efficient when it comes to uh, scheduling the trial date. Uh, Mr. Musk wanted to delay it a lot. Twitter wanted to have it immediately, and they did it pretty quick, a little bit closer to Twitter's timeline. He wanted to delay in trial, uh, or not trial. In, in, it's not a, not, not a criminal case in during the, the case itself, and uh, they got a little bit of that, but not much. This isn't a place that you can go mess around. They are very strict when it comes to efficiently working through business law, right? I had a feeling it was going to happen because he wasn't going to be able to wriggle his way out of it. And guess what? He didn't, uh, ultimately didn't have the, the court technically enforcing it, but uh, they, they basically enforced it right? because he was ready to, to back out or, or keep it going for 10 years if he had to. And that was not going to happen in the Delaware Court of Chancery. That was the name I didn't know at the time.
2: And as we all know from watching the news the last couple of weeks, you know, he's lost a lot more than $44 billion.
3: Is the answer his mind?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking, uh, was I talking to Carol, but I think that uh, I think Trump and and Elon Musk should get together. Yeah. So, uh, I was talking about, uh, David Bradley playing the doctor on a BBC special or show or whatever it was called an adventure in space and time. And it was a making of the doctor who, uh, from back in the, in the sixties when it first started, it's a pretty good show. Um, and he plays the doctor, you know, the original actor who played the doctor that is. And we were talking about the, uh, doomsday type scenarios that happens in star trek a lot and the first one was i i mentioned Hal 9000 which came out 2001 came out in 1968 but in um a few few months earlier actually uh the ultimate computer um by um i'm not sure daystrom is the guy who made it and it was called M5, and it was the one where they installed this M5 computer saying Daystrom's theory was that you know he could fly this the enterprise better than Spock and Crew could. Sorry, than Kirk and Crew could. And um of course, you know, everything goes horribly wrong, and William Shatner pulls a fast one and outlogics a computer, which is completely plausible. <laughs> that was season two, season two, episode twenty-four. Uh, March 8th, 1968. And then The Changeling, which was the episode with Nomad, which is the uh, satellite that returns or comes back to Earth looking for the creator, which again spun off to become V'ger in in the movie. That was season two, episode three, even before that one. yeah, season two, episode three. That was in September 27th, 1967, which was kind of interesting if you think about it, because that was, I don't know, I, I, when movies are being made and all that kind of stuff, who knows what's going on. 2001 didn't come out until May of 1968. This was a full, almost half a year ahead, I guess. Yeah, September to May. Um, that nomad went bananas and tried to take over the enterprise and got out logic by William Shatner, James Kirk. You said it. So, yeah, cool. Now, why did I put Douglas Tremble down down there? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so a little fun fact about two thousand one Space Odyssey. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but when it hit the theaters, it was a flop, right? And back then, you know, they would show a movie for you know six, eight, ten, twelve weeks. If it was twelve weeks, it was like a really, a really popular film. Everybody, everybody wanted to go see it, kind of thing. There weren't that many films coming out, you know, and like it is, like it is today, but. Uh, the, the movie theaters were going to or the, the production company was going to pull it because they thought, OK, it's a, it's a big flop. And and uh, the people selling tickets said, no, no, hang on, hang on. Just let let it, let us keep it for a couple more weeks because the Stargate, which was the scene created by Douglas Trumbull with a bunch of lights and lasers and, and mirrors and things was a, it was really enjoyable if you were under certain influences. And so it was the uh, the 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 um partakers of these influencers that saved the 2001 and made it a popular film fun fact interesting yeah now can you go deeper into the substances that this might involve i would at that time it probably would have been lsd but um in marijuana i think right um so this i think this is me and or this this my thing Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. the the context. I was talking about the the opening scene for Randor. It reminds me a lot of the the very first couple of scenes in 2001. And so the crescent moon and sun aligned are symbols of uh, Uh, Zoroastrianism. I can say this word sometimes, but I can't think. I'm looking at it right now and I can't even say it. Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism. Thank you. And the theme, also Sprach uh, is based on the poem by Richard Strauss, who's German, of course, um, which, is based on a book by, which is based on a book by Nietzsche, who's also German. He's the ja, one who famously said that God is dead. And that was, the connection was intentional, that God is dead. Uh, the choice of, of the music based on the poem by Strauss, based on the philosophy by Nietzsche about God being dead was intentionally used by, by uh, Kubrick as a sort of connection, which is, I think it's kind of cool. Because if you think about it, the whole, you know, man created Hall and Hal and Hal took over and went bananas. So that's cool. Um, Saul Guerrera, we were talking about him last week uh, or two weeks ago, was originally introduced as a minor character in the Clone Wars, played by, not by uh, Forrest Whit- Whitaker, but by Andrew Kishino. So Forrest Whitaker played him in Rogue One and then in Rebel. And uh, Alexander Andrew Kishino has has been the voice of Saw in Bad Batch. So there you go.
0: Yeah, so he's playing the younger, for...
3: younger version too, right? He's playing the... the uh... Is he? Yeah, yeah. Because obviously in Clone Wars he would have been a younger man, so that's he's playing the younger version. Okay, cool. Um, So my
2: question, this question is for you Jonathan. How many podcasts do you actually listen to? In a week?
3: Ep- episodes or different uh, you're
2: shows? Always pulling, you're always pulling from like at least three or four. Oh. You no. Know, mm-hmm. And or podcasts and things like
3: that. Yeah. Um, Let me have a look. And... So uh, I'll, I'll go by shows and not episodes first. So shows, one, I'll, two. Just, just for context for people three, who listen four, to podcasts five, a lot.
2: Eight.
1: Jonathan works from home, yeah. so he does not commute for an hour or two a day. <laughs> Seven, eight. Oh, he's counting. That does make it challenging because I also... Work from home, and since I no longer commute, I have to be a little bit more strict in what I actually listen to. Even though I think I'm subscribed to more podcasts than when I was commuting. Uh, yeah, when did I last commute? 2000? Thousand... Really? Okay, 2016, so probably early ish.
3: Oh, Cons- Cons- we
1: almost
2: Cons-
3: Cons- six years. Podcast listening would go down because of lack of commuting, right? It, it does, but then there's also times where, you know, if I'm doing like some of my work is administrative, like I have to do uh, invoicing for social media buys and stuff like that. It is repetitive task. It's not very hard for me. So I can listen to an entire podcast while I do that for an hour or an hour and a half, like that, that kind of stuff. Like I, I maybe it's part of the nature of the work that I've done all these years, but I can, I can use two parts of my brain simultaneously. So I can listen to a podcast while doing, you know, yeah, invoicing and stuff like that. Or, you know, frankly, with doing writing and other things too. Um, So I listen to about nine or 10 different podcasts each week. And of those, several of them are multiple times a week. Some of them are two to three episodes a week. So all in, I probably listen to 25, 30 podcasts a week, which is a lot, admittedly. But, I mean, it's what I do, like, you know, I'm also, as you well know, Tim, something of an insomniac, too, so uh, when I'm not sleeping, I'm just, I'm consuming. So, yeah, I mean, I, I okay. you know, and it's, you know, it's pretty diversified, too, you know, some of it is pop culture, some of it is sports, some of it is politics, some of it is news, some of it is health information, um, you know, movies, music, Um yeah I haven't gotten to the true crime yet because you know I have enough problems sleeping already but yeah
2: know. well i listen to a, I listen to a variety of podcasts, but uh, mostly when I'm walking, my dog or raking leaves in the backyard but uh, and then occasionally I'll have an audiobook like right now I've got an audiobook, so
3: that's pretty much all I'll listen to until it's done right That's the thing that's changed for me most since the pandemic is I was listening to more audiobooks between the commute and um just you know I'm doing stuff around the house, I would listen to audiobooks more. I haven't listened to. More than like maybe two audiobooks in the last couple of years, but I've consumed just huge con- content amounts of, of podcasts. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are you listening at one time speed or one and a half? or No, one. I tried listening. Some of them, some of them are okay at like 1.2. Depends what, what platform you're listening to. Some of the stuff I listen to is like exclusive to a certain platform. So there's different variables, but yeah, 1.2 sometimes. I find 1.5 a little hard to follow sometimes. hmm but yeah, um, one point two. Yeah, but it de- it depends on the speakers and on what's happening there. But yeah, I, I I definitely would say that I am on the high end of the user scale for for podcasts, uh, as far as I know. But again, I I have a lot of a lot of interest, and I like to stay abreast of a lot of different things. So, what about you, Jaime? What what's your what's your habit like? Are these similar
1: or pretty similar? Uh, most of the listening tends to be while well, walking the dog or uh, doing you know chores of some sort. Yeah, washing when, dishes when Paw
2: Patrol isn't on, of course, right? Yeah, when, when Paw Patrol <laughs> is,
1: isn't isn't the go-to uh, in, in between, uh, you know, uh, releases of, of that uh, movie franchise. Um, I also end up having varying speeds. I I think the only thing I listen to at one X speed is Lavar Burton reads because it is uh, you know a narrative. It works better as as reading the story to you. Um, but otherwise, everything is at a minimum one point five. Uh, sometimes two, and if I can understand them, three X, but it, wow. it really depends on, on the pacing and the kind of thing. But, three X? What? Yeah. Uh, really... Yeah. It's, it's great for those like, you know, just the facts, ma'am. kind of shows of like, you know, what's up for today. Cool. It's a 15 minute show. I can do it in five. <laughs> right? Wow. I just need to know yeah. uh, what's going on in, you know, in wars in economics in, mm. you know, general light entertainment. It's more of like the quick hits sort of thing so that one's really easy so if i can you know try to do 3x but it is difficult because it depends on the pacing of the show it depends on the pacing of and how understandable the person is there there are different accents that are more difficult to listen to yeah um well i've heard
2: that people who are visually impaired tend to listen to their audio like really fast because they can consume it faster right
1: mm That and makes sense.
2: So and to attuned to that sort of listening. Yeah, I mean uh, there's a few things. Like I mean, if I'm watching a tech video or something and I just want to get through it, I'll I'll throw it at one point five. Sometimes two, like when I was doing the Ray Wonderlick stuff, reviewing videos, I would watch the Apple videos at two times to sort of get the gist, you know? But um yeah, and I have I have a handful of shows that I go back to. Like I have a like a one I use overcast, so I've got like a list of uh, my top hit ones and then then occasionally I'll dip into other stuff that i find out about so right right now i just i just discovered a um uh art critic and then i'd never even heard of him before i just stumbled across him on facebook or instagram or something oh i know i heard him interviewed on the the cbc and so i bought his book and been listening to his book it's pretty good all righty so i don't know if you put the maybe somebody put this link in here to try to help my brain but so I was thinking as I was editing the show last week that there if there were only two Targaryens left in Game of Thrones, is how is Daenerys a direct descendant of the current people we're seeing now? And and what are the odds of so many generations and, and her being in direct line to the throne?
3: So you can click through if you want. It won't spoil anything that I think we're going to get into, although there is a few, uh, you know, like you will find out who and who have kids and stuff like that for future seasons of House of the Dragon. But if you want the quick summary, it is that uh, Daenerys is a direct descendant of Rhaenyra. That, that's the, okay. the the bottom line on how this breaks out. So you can trace her back to... You can trace Daenerys' family line back to Rhaenyra. Yeah, I, I, see, I noticed that her brother's not in here, but I guess that's just because he's inconsequential or something, or...? Uh yeah, I mean he theoretically he would be uh next to her underneath a, a, uh, Eris a the 2nd. He's he's the, also the son of Eris the 2nd, the mad king uh that Jamie kills in the past of Game of Thrones. Jamie, Jamie the Kingslayer, Jamie the 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 king's oh, he he the kills him, brother. He kills him before the story starts, Yes. Right? Yeah, that's he oh, was okay. he was basically the the in the king's guard. He was supposed to be guarding the king the when when Eris thought that uh, the, the the forces, the forces from the north, the Baratheons and the Starks and everybody were going to come and take King's Landing. He ordered the city to be burned to the ground. And in order to prevent that from happening, Jaime kills him. Uh, which, so he betrays oh, okay. his oath to do that. He he basically, he takes out the king and henceforth is known as the Kingslayer. Hmm. Okay. But yeah. Because yeah, so... become, Baratheon becomes king and he's married to... Yeah, Robert becomes the king and he marries Cersei who is the daughter of the Lannisters. So it's basically an alliance of the okay. Lannisters and and the Baratheons to hold power. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And that, that okay. they they're the first ones post Targaryen rule. They they are the ones who end the Targaryen rule in King's Landing by by that conflict which we we see part of it sort of encapsulated in in Game of Thrones. Anyway, yeah, if you if you start at the bottom of this thing and go upwards, you can sort of see all the stages that it takes to get back up to uh to Rhaenyra and and her her progeny. So you can put piece together who's who's and whose make who. But yeah, by by the time we get to Game of Thrones, the only two left are uh Daenerys and her brother. And they're the last surviving children of, of Eris. Although, to be fair sorry, to be fair, that's not true. There are other Targaryens out there. It's just that uh you have to read the books because there's there's more than two Targaryens well I I don't know I just I always thought that there was just the two of them like at this point
2: right in in the beginning of Game of Thrones
3: yeah they're the only ones using the Targaryen name there are Targaryen uh bastards out there oh yeah well yeah like like the one from the north all righty let's move to the headlines JPA you're up first uh yeah so starting with some bad news uh this is much bad news in this episode but uh hbo has dropped the axe on westworld this came out uh very end of uh of last week that uh they've decided that uh four four seasons is enough and that they are not going to proceed with a fifth in what was expected to be final season and uh uh, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise move for I think a lot of us. I think everybody kind of thought that they had the potential. Obviously, they kind of wrapped up season 4 like it could have ended there. I think with that in mind that it, that the axe might fall. But I mean, it's uh it's strange as as the article here from Hollywood Reporter states, you know, uh it was, you know, it wasn't a blockbuster as far as ratings, but it was, you know, much acclaimed uh, 54 Emmy nominations across four seasons, including a supporting actress win for uh, Tendai Newton. Um, it, you know, I think uh, I think it's it's I guess hubris to think that your favorite shows are gonna survive when there's you know these dramatic moves. When you hear about the the you know Batgirl movie being canceled, and you hear about all the plugs being pulled on all these things, which is, you know are are major productions. Uh, I guess it's not surprising that the axe fell on this one, but at the same time, you'd think that there was enough of a built-in audience for this to do it. My only thought on this was the cast is made up of almost entirely stars, like big-name Hollywood movie makers and and other things, so maybe signing them for a fifth and final season was just cost-prohibitive just to just to have that many talented cast members. But it's a bummer. I, I I would have liked to have seen how they intended to wrap this up.
2: Like I said, I'm I'm stuck halfway through season three. I don't know if I finished it yet. So not
1: crushed. Jaime, are you crushed? You know, I haven't actually seen season four, so I'm a little curious if it has a hard um, cliffhanger ending. Like how how you know how difficult of an ending it is. It to 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 watch knowing that there is no fifth season or did it end in a okay kind of wrapped up but uh, you can see how they can continue and like really do the wrap up next time
3: yeah i mean uh, well, I, probably a better conversation to have once you guys have have caught up with it but uh without spoiling and i will just say there is a natural sort of ending in the way that they finished it up but i wouldn't say it's a satisfying ending it is an ending mm. you could say it's it's sort of completed a. a, a a portion but it's not a happy ending by any means it's it, I wouldn't say as a fan that it's a satisfying ending it's just an ending and And I think that's kind of what I was hoping for for that fifth season was there would be some redemption arcs, some satisfactory endings for some of these characters and in a lot of circumstances it's it's not the happiest of endings for some of these characters to to close out on, so I don't know I, I wonder. I wonder if this will have the sort of groundswell like we've seen in the past for things like Deadwood, right? Deadwood had three seasons. The three seasons were unbelievably good television, but it never really was a gangbuster. It got cancelled, and the fans just kept saying, please please, 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 come back to this, finish the story, and in the end, they did a movie on HBO to close it out. I wonder if that kind of thing might somewhere... I mean, it took like... I don't know, eight years, ten years for them to come up with a Deadwood movie. I wonder if something like that somewhere down the line would make sense. Although, it, you know, characters, actors aging, you know, like it's it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to guarantee that kind of stuff. I'm bummed. I wanted to see a season. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Speaking of uh, Warner Brothers, they have uh, had a an earnings call recently where Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav said that he would like for the company to revisit Harry Potter and work more with JK Rowling. So obviously there's some interesting stuff to parse from that. He basically said, you know, Warner Brothers is going to have to focus on franchises. We haven't had a Superman movie in 13 years. We haven't done a Harry Potter movie in 15 years. Both of those numbers are wrong, but that's what he said. And, um, you know, He's talking about how, you know, Harry Potter provided a lot of profit to Warner Brothers. And, you know, that's definitely something that they want to get back into. So what that means and, and where that is going is kind of the, the left open to interpretation part. And we, we can certainly participate in the speculation. You know, there's a difference between saying the Wizarding World and Harry Potter, right? The Wizarding World, they've certainly they've done the last three, uh, you know, Fantastic Beasts movies were not beloved. When he says Harry Potter, does he mean Harry Potter, Harry Potter? As in starring Harry, Ron, and and uh, Hermione? Uh, you know, the school something said at Hogwarts? Like, what is he talking about? And in addition to that, you know, uh, J.K. Rowling has, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, sullied her good name over the last few years. And she has definitely lost a lot of fans over her stance on... Uh, trans rights and uh, you know, is the idea of her being involved and in going back into that world something that people will be excited about or is it something they will be you know, very suspicious about? Yeah, and um, she's famously said she's not doing, she's not going to write
2: any more books. I mean, that was the whole her whole shtick was it was going to be the seven books and then that's
3: it, right? But then she also, um, after that, she, she co-wrote the the fantastic beast movies and she co-wrote the 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 theatrical performance the harry potter the the Child. she Mm. she was involved with that
2: as well so well it's like you say famous last words you know like when you well and she's not hurting for money it's like
3: she would do it for money it would be it would have to be for the right reasons yeah i don't know i kind
2: of wonder like you know based on what you were just saying you know you kind of wonder if the woman who wrote the first book or first three books is the same woman who wrote you know the last ones, right? So, because, you know, it, success and money does change your perspective on things, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and I wonder mm-hmm. if when they say, you know, returning to Harry Potter, do they mean expanding the universe, you know, a new class at Hogwarts set there? Or do they mean involving the cast from the Harry Potter movies and books? And beyond that, do they mean, you know... uh hiring Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson and and you know the, the, the famous actors who played these roles Rupert Grint you know uh you know that that's gets more complicated you know so i
2: mean i could i could see them, I could see them redoing the movies like you know like going back to that but i mean they were so well visualized it's going to be hard to do that right
3: well and it has enough time elapsed that that would be i mean obviously i'm sure they could do better Visually, some of the stuff that they weren't able to do in the you know late '90s into the early 2000s when these movies started rolling out, I'm sure they could improve them. But is there an appetite for that? I mean, these not only are these movies successful, but they're kind of beloved. You know, a lot of generations of people have watched them and and love these actors and characters. And yeah, so yeah,
2: they're still in wide circulation. I mean, they're all over the place. And and you know, what are they going to do? Like the Malfoy shoots first edition or
3: what? <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm really curious to find out what he means from from his comments. Well, it
2: sounds like from what you're telling that his his, his numbers and his facts and figures
3: are distorted already. So who knows, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, you know, again, that could just be I'm a busy CEO and I'm not going to give you the exact number. I'm just going to give you some ballpark figures for, for illustrative purposes. But at the same time, you know, yeah, like, it, it, will people follow back into the harry potter verse if harry potter the character is involved if it's recast if jk Rowling is involved and obviously not without her controversy it's i think that's a fascinating thing to keep an eye on i don't know what would elon do that's what i want to know (laughs) all right
2: (laughs) let's move on to the next one
3: it's you again it's me again yeah so we got a couple of good trailers one last week one this week so we can we can sort of lump these into a little trailer watch but uh this, uh, last week we got Avatar 2, we got a full, more fulsome trailer with a little more sort of plot, a little less just, you know, pretty things flying around and more sort of plot focused. And then, uh, just today we got John Wick 4. So we've got a couple of really good looking trailers. Uh, what did you guys take away from Avatar 2 and John Wick's trailers? Well, the Avatar, Avatar 2 had more sort of like, um,
2: what do you call it? uh. Ugh exposition on who the characters are and and their kids and whatever and you know like like the main character forgetting his name now but he's like is is he really a guy is he really one of these creatures like did they or did they make him in a jar and like how is he able to produce offspring i don't understand you know And then you got John Wick, on the other hand, where, you know, I thought he was done in the second movie, and then I thought he was done in the third movie, but apparently he's not done. I'm thinking I don't know why he, why why does he believe, (laughs) why does, yeah, and he needs guns, but why does he believe that they're ever going to let him go, you know, like, because every time he, there's always some complication, you know, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're out, but your family's not out. Well, what family does he have? He had a dog, you know, but get, wait. There's going to be some offspring somewhere, I'm sure, right? Yeah. I mean, if John Wick is beating up people, how, how does
1: he produce offspring? I don't understand.
3: <laughs> what about you, Jaime? Uh,
1: I liked both trailers. The one for Avatar seems uh, beautiful. Obviously, I would prefer to see it in 3D. That's kind of how that uh, series is kind of meant to to be in my head. Um It is kind of interesting that they're setting up a sort of multi-generational thing and that there is a different set of the, are they the Navi? Is that the name of their people? Yep. Yep. Uh, The the different set of Navi who are like, hey, don't bring your stupid war over here. Like we were totally fine over here, just chilling, not, you know, doing a revolution or anything. We were just living in peace and harmony with the land. So that sort of, uh, you know, cultural contrast is kind of interesting for that plot line. And, uh, John, week- they, they're doing four movies, right? Aren't they doing like three or four movies? It's a total
3: of five or was it five new ones? No, it's, it's total of five. Although I, I didn't paste it in here, but there was a, a piece that appeared this week where, uh, James Cameron sort of acknowledged, he said, you know, we could end it at three if we needed to, if he said, for all I know, after all this time, no one's going to care. And it's funny because that's exactly what we talked about on this spot a few episodes back. but. He basically said, you know, I have in mind to do five, but if the second one doesn't do as well as we hope, I could finish this in three so that I could tell a satisfying story and we don't have to do five. I don't know. I guess I, you know, I'm sure the studio has an expectation for how much money it's going to make. I'm sure there's a number, but, uh, you know, the first one made over $2 billion globally. I don't know that given, especially, you know, we're still muddling through a pandemic I don't know what their expectations are for the performance of Avatar Two. You know, is it going to be? They, do they expect to to break every record in the book? It, it seems impossible, but who knows? Yeah,
2: I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing about it is, like we we said, it was sort of it was sort of the the pinnacle of of three D cinema amazingness, right? And and it's not. I don't know if it's it's still in a pretty pretty good looking movie, but I don't like. I think you and I both had the same impression when we came out. We weren't as blown away seeing it again after so many years as we, now that we've been spoiled with other great attempts, like, you know?
3: Yeah. And I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was bad by any means, but I think you're right. I think there's just been, you know, we've seen so many envelopes being pushed across digital technology and, and everything else. I mean, I thought this was, this movie was still holds up and there's still lots to like about it. But I mean, if I could watch the end scene of, uh, of end game over and over and over again, it, puts this to shame yeah yeah for sure that
1: and, and john
3: wick uh, jaime
1: i'm a f- huge fan of the series um this seems like another interesting addition uh it's actually more serialized than a james bond but it kind of feels like a could go on forever kind of uh james bond style sort of thing especially with keanu reeves being like a vampire or unending in some <laughs> ways so
3: <laughs> he might continue to do these for a long time. Whoa. Yeah, it's. Uh, it, I had the same sort of take on So I knew they were doing a part four, and when I saw that the trailer dropped today, I was like, oh, okay, let's check this out. And I looked at it and thought, as I as I started, I was very dubious. I was like, but didn't it kind of wrap the story? Uh, let's see. And by the time I got to the end of the trailer, I was like, I would totally watch this. I would totally watch this movie.
2: And so the question is, would you go to the theater to watch it, or would you wait till it's on some home view thing?
3: I've never seen a John Wick movie in the theater. And I and I'm sure that it's probably a great experience because they are pretty cool, well choreographed action stuff, and that's that's kind of fun to watch on a big screen. But I've enjoyed the three movies that I've watched in the comfort of my own home with you know I've, I've got a nice setup here, and I've I've never thought less of the movies for it. Maybe I would if I had a, a comparative, you know, to to having seen it in the screen. But I don't know. I mean. I like action movies just fine versus sci-fi fantasy movies, but I don't feel as compelled to go see them in the theater, which is strange, I suppose. But for some reason, I feel like sci-fi fantasy is a must-see on a big screen as much as you can, and I don't feel that way about action as much.
2: All right, cool. All right, so what's happening with Walmart and Netflix, Jaime?
1: Yeah, these next two stories are sort of intertwined in a, I sense a theme here, so... When it comes to how can these streaming services draw additional revenue streams, the first one up is a collaboration between Walmart and Netflix to sell Netflix-themed stuff in a uh, Netflix hub section within the physical Walmart store. So this article from The Verge, uh, I have that in the show notes for those of you uh, transporting home, has a uh, Demogorgon bright. It has a Stranger Things advent calendar. And it has a concessions kit, so there's like, you know, popcorn, snacks, and other things that are supposed to help you not only munch, but also feel like you're more of a theater kind of attitude, uh, setting, which almost feels like there must be some executive somewhere listening to this very podcast. Because if you remember, back when, you know, the the pandemic times of lockdowns and HBO, Warner Brothers movies for 2021 are all going to be in uh, theaters, not in theaters going to be on streaming only. I said, you know, this is a missed opportunity to slap on some, I don't remember if it was justice league or wonder woman. Can't remember the exact time of the year. I said, why don't they just slap some, you know, some, some coupons and some, uh, stickers on some existing popcorn stuff and make it be like, Hey, you're enjoying the theater at home. What an easy idea. And Netflix has kind of done that. So, Great minds think alike, or people are are you know, listening to these podcasts to, to get ideas for <laughs> what they're doing. <laughs> I'm telling you, we got to start copywriting some of these ideas. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the the next one is uh, apparently I don't know did this pass already. It's been a while. Whatever. Disney Plus subscribers got some sort of first dibs at new Marvel and Star Wars merchandise. Is what the second article says. So you could buy uh, the Mandalorian Dark Le- uh, Dark Saber Legacy Set. You get the Scarlet Witch ear headband, the uh, Captain Carter vibranium shield. Uh, apparently, these are or were limited to being sold to Disney Plus subscribers. So again, another one of those revenue streams of beyond the streaming itself. How do you get uh, some revenue from folks?
3: Yeah, that's, uh, it, they did that when DC Comics did an app a few years back, if you guys will recall. That's where Doom Patrol and Titans came from. Initially, they were going to create individual, like, custom content for there, but they were also doing custom swag, where you could only get if you subscribed to the service. You got to watch the special TV shows, and you got advanced sales and exclusive material on there. And that app eventually crashed and burned, which is which is unfortunate. But I did think that that was a a kernel of a really good idea there. It's it's interesting that Disney basically is now picking that up and doing it with Star Wars and Marvel stuff, but. yeah, I think it's a smart idea. I mean, if you've got people who are interested in those things, you know, if you I mean, I, I assume they're doing this anyways, but they know what your viewing habits are. They can target goods to you that are appropriate to those things. They could try and, you know, hone in on what you like and try and sell it to you. That's smart mm-hmm. business. All right. Uh I have a couple of uh couple of sad things to announce. So um two very prominent comic book artists, both passed away this week. And um one of them was expected and, and, and sadly expected and one of them wasn't. Uh the artist Carlos Pacheco died. Uh he was a Spanish artist, best known for uh his work on Avengers and X-Men, uh Green Lantern on the Jeff John's famous run. Um he was extremely talented. He was uh he was You know, uh, been had been working in the industry for thirty years. Had done a a huge amount of work. You know, cover like Fantastic Four, X Men, Captain America, Green Lantern. Like he touched on so many of the big characters, and he had a really really cool art style. Very dynamic. Very, you know, uh, yeah, just exploded off the page. Really really gifted, gifted, gifted artist. He had announced about a month ago that he was retiring from uh, working on. Books because he had been diagnosed with ALS, which of course is a, a, a very very debilitating uh, disease, and he had yeah said that he was he was sort of out of it, um, and and yeah to to have died so quickly after that announcement uh, is is pretty devastating, and he was only sixty years old, so uh, that is a huge loss and and definitely one that uh, modern comic fans will feel. I I, I would say that if you're a comic fan who's been reading in the last 25 years you probably own some of Carlos Pacheco's work and uh and yeah his his work and his presence i know uh you know i'm i'm obviously a little bit connected to the comic community still and and the number of people i know who are artists who who either knew him or worked with him uh that were posting tributes this week you know everyone was saying just you know what, what an incredible talent and what a what a very kind person he was and and just yeah just uh, another real blow the other artist that, that uh, died this week was Kevin O'Neill. Uh, Kevin O'Neill, you know, uh, maybe not as um, well known in the same way that Carlos was, but some of the books he worked on were iconic. He collaborated with Alan Moore to create The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which, uh, of course, was made into a pretty terrible movie, but the books are exceptional. They are... Absolutely, incredibly good books. And, uh, you know, he, he did work on some mainstream stuff, but he was a British. Um, he did a series called Mar- Martial Law was one of the first things that I read of his that uh, I just loved. I loved Martial Law. It was very, just in a world where comics were still very much aimed at kids and very much uh, mainstream, you know, bubblegum, pop culture stuff. He was doing really edgy, dark, violent Uh, you know grim and gritty he was on the leading edge of that and his work was really really interesting Um, very angular very angry uh, just just really for its time was pushing an envelope very very visionary stuff and then carrying that forward you know working right from the 80s through the 90s and then into the 2000s and then yeah working on things like multiple chapters of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with with Alan Moore um, you know there are some gorgeous editions of those books that you can get and see just how how incredible an artist he was uh, He was only sixty nine too so again just just far too soon to be losing these these really really talented people but uh, same thing a, a lot of people who are just sort of really knocked on their on their butts this week by by his passing and you know lots of tributes, lots of love for for him in the community um, you know these are people who contributed a lot to the art form that elevated it to the place where it is today where it is really mainstream and it is really popular and uh and and we definitely owe a debt to both these these men and uh yeah i just i just felt gut punched this week by both of these i i you know uh yeah it's been a bad year the last year for for losing talented comics artists and creators and uh this is just two really really nasty ones for me so i'm really sad to see them go all right now I'm gonna try and pull us out of that sad part. I put it in the middle so that I could I could try and s- try and pull us back out um so a couple quick things so uh news came out last week that Henry Cavill is leaving the Witcher series on Netflix uh, ostensibly he's doing this because he is returning to be Superman in the d c EU so they've also announced that he is going to be replaced with Liam Hemsworth from Hunger Games brother of of, uh, oh god, what's the other Hemsworth? Chris, yes, that's right. Chris. Yes. Uh, Chris Chris, yes. Well, that's, yeah, there's a third one. He was done Westworld. Um, Anyways, they are, yes, they're not obviously ending the series uh, because it is successful, and they're not, um, yeah, they they can't write out the character. He's the main character. He's He is, you know, the, the, well, he's Geralt, right? The titular character, so they can't just get rid of that character if they want to continue the series, so. Uh, yeah, kind of weird. I, I must admit, I have not watched The Witcher. Are either of you guys watching and or watched The Witcher? First season for me.
1: Um, I haven't gotten around to season two. Uh, don't know that I've heard as much buzz around season two as I did with season one. And given the the uh, maybe Cavill's leaving because the showrunners want to not do something that's in in spirit or in service with their original material, it makes me wonder if I... Uh, If I will continue or not, has me doubting.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sort of torn about it. I I, I like Henry Cavill. I think he's he's uh, really interesting, and I think he got kind of a raw deal. The Superman that he's been asked to play over the series of the Snyderverse films is certainly not the Superman that I grew up reading and enjoying. Um, Just kind of joyless, just kind of brooding and moody and angsty, and and I'm hoping now that there's this sort of new regime at DC and that they intend to bring him back and have him continue playing this character that maybe he'll have an opportunity to play a more uh, just joyful and and hopeful and inspiring Superman. So uh, that's, that's I, I guess, as I'm not a Witcher fan, I'm not mourning this loss so much as I'm kind of curious as to what the spill out of this is as he moves back to being Superman. So.
2: I thought he was going back to do more Nola
3: Holmes films. Yeah, and uh, what was the—oh, uh, he's Mission Impossible, right? He's He's been in those Mission Impossible moves. Yeah, with the mustache. Um, We've got news that uh, Marvel has scooped up a DC star to be uh, one, in one of its new Disney Plus series. So uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen is going to be starring in the new Disney Plus Wonder Man series. Wonder Man, uh, for comic fans, a longtime character— Debuted in the nineteen sixties as a villain in Avengers, was resurrected. You know, almost ten years later, brought back to life, uh, and they sort of explained that away as he was sort of metamorphosizing. He wasn't actually dead. He was. He was actually turning into something else. Uh, he is a character who is you know uh, essentially uh, unhurtable, unkillable, immortal, and is basically made up of energy. But in the comic books, an interesting character that that could be exploited the right way if it's told the right way. In that he is, um, he uses his his immortality and his indestructibility to become a uh, to work in Hollywood. He works as a stuntman, he works as an actor, and so there's sort of that you could have some fun with that as a character in the comic books. Uh, of course, like so many characters, uh, that you know, this happens to. They are taking a character that was established as white, and they're giving this role to a Black actor. Uh, I, for one, couldn't care less. I think this is great. I think I've I've seen Yahya Abdul-Mateen. He was in the Watchmen series that was on HBO, which I wanted to hate, but loved. And he was great in it, and he was absolutely incredible in it. So I'm way behind this, absolutely excited to have him be the star of his own thing. As I said, he, he was working for DC. He was Black Manta in the Aquaman movie. And he will be reprising that role in the new uh, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom movie that's coming out. So uh, it's kind of a strange one, too, where, you know, James Gunn is moving over to, from Marvel to DC. Uh, is moving over from DC to Marvel. I'm sure there's going to be some of these things. Obviously, there's only a number, a certain number of actors of, of, you know, caliber that you want to have star in your things. This is going to happen. But, um, yeah, I'm excited to see this series come together. Do you guys have any feelings one way or the other about a, a Wonder Man series? I. I'm in an interesting spot where um, I don't remember
1: specifics around the character that well. And yet he was kind of always sort of there um, in, in these group comics. So I I definitely recognize him on site, but I'm like, what's this dude's backstory? What exactly are his powers? Am I confusing with someone? So I don't know. um, I don't know why that is for me, but that's not a, that's not a diss on the character. That's just, um, you know, we're, we're, we're tapping out the 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 heavy players and now yeah. it's like, all right, let's let's see how deep the the rabbit hole goes, right? And so kind of exciting to see these things come to life that never, you know, twenty yep. years ago never would have come to life because they weren't the big heavy hitters. You know, Spider Man, X Men superman kind of thing like, and now we're like hey let's expand it out and the uh, black panther could that be a thing yeah sure B-b-b-b-b- what else we got we got the, the vision I yeah i know it's true i mean a
3: character that you would immediately think to pull out for a show but then when you break down the fundamentals of the character the longevity of it the hook of the character, which is, you know, uh, you know turn, turns indestructible, decides to go work in Hollywood. Like there's some fun stuff you can do with that. So it does make sense when you look at it abstractly. And of course, if you hire the right people to tell the right stories, get good writers, get good directors, get good actors, you can you can make something good out of very small ideas, uh, you know, if, if you've got Disney's budget. So I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with this. All right, a couple more mm-hmm. quick ones. Uh, Stargirl, one of the last surviving series on the CW from the DC Universe, is ending. It, uh, it's third season, which is just about to start, or is just started, uh, let's see, do, 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 wrapping up its run on December 7th. So its last episode's coming December 7th. That will be the end of the series uh i'm not at all surprised by this it makes sense they we've clearly been seeing that they're clearing the decks they want to move stuff off of cw to a certain extent so that they can move that content uh back into the movie theaters or do things a little differently with this new regime running the studios so that that checks out so really what that leaves us with now is uh, uh the the superman and lois series is the last thing, uh, Flash is about to enter its final season. And um, there is a series that they've slated to come next year. It's the um, Gotham Knights is supposed to be the the next DC project. As far as I know, it is still slated to come out next year. But this being who it is, who knows? So, uh, you know, it looks like the... the Inevitable final death of the Arrowverse and its expanded properties is is in the offing. There's a a lot of speculation Superman and Lois might get the plug pulled on it at the end of the season too, so.
2: Well, that's no great loss in my opinion, but, you know, there you go.
3: Yeah, some good, some good, some bad. I mean, all good things, right? Uh, We got a... A release date, finally, for the Last of Us TV series on HBO. Mm -hmm. We talked about the trailer for that one a few weeks back. Uh, We now know when it is coming. It is coming on January 15th on HBO Max. So uh, that'll be Crave here in Canada, I would assume, uh, because that's where HBO content ends up. And so, yeah, if you're keen to uh, check this one out, January 15th is the date. And last but not least, we also got news that they have Officially picked up the second season of The Sandman at Netflix. Uh, glad to hear that one. I've really enjoyed what I've seen of that series so far. And, uh, I, you know, again, while I while I do think that there's a missed opportunity there when they do their gripping, here's all the episodes, walk away thing, I did uh, enjoy what I've seen. And I do think I'd love to see where they go next. Uh, if they're following the comics faithfully, which they seem to be doing pretty well, uh, the next arc is incredibly good comic writing i imagine it'll be incredibly good television too so that's exciting well yeah right i think we
2: at the main part of the show where uh, what happened to vision we didn't talk about that one did we but
3: anyway moving on oh the vision yeah no we didn't talk okay. about the vision you're right too, too bad. yes that they're going to do the paul bettany vision series right, okay.
2: um yeah so we're at the main part of the show where we talk about something related to star trek and we have currently the only star trek we have going for us right now is prodigy this is episode 11 and episode 12 they we're going to be talking about. Episode 11 is Let Sleeping Borgs Lie, and All the roles this Stage is uh, episode 12. How many episodes are there in the season, do we know?
3: They did, uh, was it nine? I guess they did nine for the first half. I don't. I can't remember off the top of my head. If, uh, I'll look it I'll look uh, it up. I'll at a, look a quick look. And, okay. But yeah, I, I think... I, the it was nine for the first half i don't know if it's a nine for the second half or if there's more or less but yeah i i assumed i, I assumed it was going to end somewhere before christmas because that's typically what they do right
2: my elevator pitch for the sleeping borgs lies run away <laughs> but they never do <laughs> anyway so they should do what the cerritos does and just like turn around and go the other way you know <laughs>
3: Well, they're, the thing is, they—they are—they're supposed to be Star Trek. They don't know better, right? Even when Janeway's like, "I recommend we leave," they're like, "Nah, it looks fine." Uh, yeah, my elevator pitch was, uh, "Welcome to Borg One Hundred One. First lesson: resistance is not always futile." Because this felt like yet another installment of Star Trek, right? This is our our nickname for this show, where they're trying to sort of give you a taste of all the different things. And in this case, it was what are the Borg? And so we got a whole, you know, backstory about here's what the Borg are. Here's how they work. Here's what they do. Although they didn't really work like we have typically seen Borg in the past. In this case, like they're like, instead of just trans uh, transitioning them or or infecting them with their nanoprobes, the second that they get their hands on them, they're like, what if the Borg suddenly started taking prisoners? Like uh, what? So that was weird. Yeah. By the way, there were 20
2: episodes planned. there you go. So,
3: so yeah, so we still got a fair, fair bit to go before, uh, before they wrap up the season. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind that might be
1: off by one in what you're thinking, because they here in, on Paramount plus, they considered the mid season, uh, a mid season finale to be two different parts. Uh, I think for you all, it was like one, one, uh, I guess, hour long episode and here it was like part one and then part two. So when you said the numbers, I was like, well, it should be twelve and thirteen. It's like, oh wait, that's right. It might be numbered slightly oh,
2: differently. We'll have to
3: address that you know, for packaged. going forward, yeah.
2: Well actually I think one and two, we had one and two as a full hour
1: long premiere, right?
2: Didn't we, John?
1: Yeah, I, I don't remember. I think that was part one and part one. Sorry, part one and part two here as well. So it it gets a little tricky to to talk about precise numbers. So I, I think we have about
3: seven episodes left. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking here at Crave. So Crave had Lost and Found as a 45-minute first episode, but I think that could also have been two parts. But they also had a moral star as episodes eight and nine. So in theory, in theory, I guess what they're saying is, is if you divide that first episode in two, that's the first 10 episodes. So we got 10 episodes in the first half and 10 in the second half.
2: On IMDb, they list uh, Episode 1 and 2 as as Lost and Found, and then Episode 9 and 10 are Moral Star. So Asylum would be... Okay. So we're technically... um, yeah. So we're at 12 and 13 this week, not 11 and 12. So Moral Star, they've got us Part 2, and then, yeah, Asylum is 11, Sleeping Voice is 12, and 13 should be all
1: the roles to stage. Okay, whatever. Now we know. Seven more weeks. mm <laughs> Yeah. Like I said, it's kind of tricky with how they package things up Uh, for this Borg one uh, going with the, you know, first entry into Star Trek for for the newbies, the kiddos. But my first Borg encounter kind of a Fisher Price sort of uh, sort of way, you know, Um, because it it does have that. It does have uh, uh, some pew 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 with the the gold finger in the bond sense room and and zeros coming in. I don't know the Borg sort of difference here. We have seen differences in like they they take you away and 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 assimilate you later versus sort of on the spot assimilation that we've we've seen, so not a little. I'm not really totally clear what's going on here. Yeah. You could sort of hand wave it as like the Borg were sleeping <laughs> and they're coming out of their slumber. So maybe they got some, some drowsy, sleepy eyes. like, yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> still have had my coffee in the morning. I can't yeah. do the the self uh, probing thing. So I'm going to have to go take them over here to the, the workshop. Is is how I headcanon that.
2: But didn't somebody upload a virus into the Borg? Like, cause, cause in Picard, um, Seven of Nine is working on like a Borg replication kind of thing. Yeah. Reclamation. Yeah. Yeah. Reclamation. Yeah. So, but I thought, I thought in TNG or maybe it was in Voyager, Voyager, she's Janeway has like a whole negotiation thing going with them. Right. But didn't they try to upload a virus that would break the collective at one point?
3: Um, It does ring a bell, but I gotta be honest. I don't remember.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I kind of, I kind of, I got the impression when this ship showed up and it was kind of dormant that it was kind of, it kind of had lost its connection to the, to the collective. And it was just sort of like they were just in stasis because they were waiting to recover or whatever. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause they don't get, they don't get immediately assimilated in this one. Like that was the the whole threat of the Borg in, in. In adult Trek, is that, you know, as soon as you see one, you get assimilated, you know, kind of thing, right?
3: Yeah, it says, they, they used some gobbledygook to explain it in this episode. They said there was a neurolytic pathogen that was loosened there, and that that is what disconnected them from the collective. Well, that's what right? I mean. So the virus that somebody uploaded at some point, right? Yeah, I don't know if it was supposed to be that or something else, but yeah, either way, basically, it's, it's a MacGuffin way of saying, this way all the Borg won't show up. You know, transwarp conduit mm-hmm. doesn't open I mean, and immediately yeah. at least suck up the protostar, right? So, so speaking of, of Jaime's reference to uh, needing their morning coffee before they're ready to assimilate, the Easter egg that I had was was Janeway drinking tea for that exact reason. Because we know that in through Voyager, she's a coffee drinker, right? She's a like hardcore coffee drinker. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in this one, she's drinking tea and they're like, what? No coffee, Vice Admiral? And she's like, I'm not allowed to have coffee anymore. Uh, which was a pretty funny gag if you're, if you're a Voyager
1: fan. That one was interesting. I, I saw some chatter online that was wondering, was that a, um, a change that they decided to go with uh, to the character, which is kind of a natural change. They said, like, hey, the doctor says you're getting old. You shouldn't be having this. It's bad for you in the quantities you're consuming it. For the real world answer isn't because they don't want a bunch of kids drinking coffee, whereas tea is generally a lot more mild. Like you know, oh, I want to be like Jane I want to drink coffee too. You know, people you know eat Popeyes spinach and carrots like Bugs Bunny. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that's not unreasonable. I kind of
3: wonder what the official answer is there. Yeah, that's pretty funny. It didn't occur to me that they were trying to. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, we we you know we've talked about this obviously being starter track and aimed at a younger audience. I wonder if they're is that level of awareness where they're like, oh, it's, it's like putting smoking in there. You mm-hmm. can't do that. Like, I wonder if it's, that's the mentality. That's pretty funny. For me, um,
1: my, my Easter egg hunt was that uh, during the Borg fight, Gwyn turns her weapon into what I think was a Klingon Bat'leth. Like, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, her own
3: species thing. It wasn't yeah. generic blade. I'm like, that's straight up Bat'leth, I think, that she's cutting him with. Yeah, which is interesting, uh, because you wonder if that came from her imagination, or if that came, like, is this a Green Lantern ring, or is this something that's pre-programmed, like, make a weapon? And if it's a Balith, does that mean that her species have encountered the Mm. Klingons Mm. at some point? Or is it just a cool Easter egg? Yeah, who knows? Uh, My big question was, uh, I thought this episode was really interesting, because we saw a clearly non-human-shaped Borg. We saw this big hulking alien turned into a Borg. And obviously there's, this is the benefit of doing animation versus doing, you know, a prosthetics and, and, you know, uh, makeup and, and everything to make these things come to life. But I thought that was very refreshing to, you know, of course the Borg would have assimilated countless races. And if they had assimilated the Protostar, they would have, in, you know, had that many more added to the collective. Of course there should have been non-stereotypical two arms two legs humanoid shaped uh borg i thought that was uh definitely a refreshing change kept wondering how they're going to simulate rock talk and murk
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: yeah, yeah. Those right are, those
1: are tricky ones for uh for my quote did uh did you all catch the name of either the doctor or the um the ensign in yeah, with with real real janeway because I have here in my notes that the like they said what quote was the doctor telling the ensign and like I wish I knew how to kiss tail like that ensign keep it up and we'll all be taking orders from you which
3: yeah I had, I had him as Doctor Noom Jason Alexander is Doctor Noom right but yeah yeah I, the I caught that line and I, I caught the doctor's name but I didn't catch the the ensign's name I think she, I think Janeway says it early in the episode but I didn't go back in. Yeah, yeah. and... Right, The
1: Ensign that's sort of putting things together, kind of uh, up-and-coming, eager beaver kind of person.
3: Yeah. It's the kind of person you'd expect to be working with, Janeway. Overall impressions of this one, it was, you know, again, it was Borg 101, right? This was this was how to get kids to understand the Borg, and I think it did a pretty yeah. good job. Yeah. How about uh, All the World's a Stage episode, we'll call it, 13?
2: Well, I mean, the one thing we didn't talk about was that they the um, they find, what's the bad guy's name? The, the Diviner. The sleeping... Diviner, yeah. So he's he's been recovering now. In in this episode, he's they're more trying to like they're treating him like you know oh he's been taken advantage of and his ship has been stolen and his daughter kidnapped and we got to help him. Um, they were they were a bit more involved, Janeway and and wasn't
3: Chico- was Chakotay in the first one or the second one? Chicote was in the first one because he was a hologram, right? She was she was going back and revisiting his his, his leaving. Yeah, so they seem to be they
2: seem to be less in, like Janeway's crew seem to be I mean real Janeway Admiral Janeway's crew seem to be less involved in these two these two episodes, right? So, uh, which means that they're going to come back later, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This was uh
3: this was the one where they they beamed out of the planet, right? And um yeah the uh, episode thirteen, so all the worlds of states. That's the one where they, uh, they yeah discover this strange new world.
2: Yeah, they meet the uh, the play the playtime uh, Starfleet, not Starfleet, Star Starflight. What do they call them? Starflight. Yeah, uh, I kind of I kind of thought they were going to go with the uh, you know um, they had read the or had found the uh, TV transmissions from the 60s because they were emulating mm-hmm. William Shatner and and um, Uh, Sulu. They do uh, uh, Bones. Sulu, right? They do Scotty. Did they do the Doctor? I didn't really find the Doctor really convincing. Scotty, I did. I, yeah,
1: it's, it it's the the Kirk one was the most like on point of like the the
3: the stereotype of cr of, of uh you know of Sulu Kirk, wasn't right? bad. Yeah, the, the Sulu wasn't bad I didn't think. Yeah. And and Dr. Boone's was Dr. Bones and uh Sprock, Boons, Yeah, And uh yeah, Sprock, Cadet yeah. Cadet Hurrah. Yeah. Yeah, it uh so the the elevator pitch I had was uh while lamenting their ability to connect with one Starfleet, the Protostar crew discovers an entirely different one. Uh Mm-hmm. It went with a combined title. Mine was uh, Star Trek, the Prime Directive
1: and Murph Bueller's Day Off as the sort of <laughs> sort of two things that, that tickled my fancy at the time was the two tracks of what's going on with Murph kind of under yeah. the weather. Um that sort of leads to my, my big question that we'll get to in a bit, and then the like oh from the, the get go it's like oh my gosh this is a prime directive episode isn't this because there's no way these people should be looking oh, like yeah. this and in in this is obviously a, a <laughs> primitive society that has been influenced unduly by the Tos era folks yeah they find the Galileo right later right
3: yeah so uh, that's my, then my question so the Easter egg obviously is is in plain sight in this case but it's it's they they wrap it up with ensign david garovic did did you guys remember that i i had the vaguest recollection of the name and then i had to go to our good friends at memory alpha to to confirm what that was from an original Mm -hmm. episode right so that's his the character not this part of it but that character was an ensign on an episode of the, the original series i didn't
1: remember the character i remember that something happened to the galileo i remember that name for the shuttlecraft and something happening well, the Galileo was the first shuttlecraft that they had the episode. That was the
2: one where Spock goes down to the planet and he's got the, um, he's, uh, it's for his first command technically, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And that's where he, they're, they're fighting the invisible or the, the unseen bad, you know, guys that are yeah. throwing spears at them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that the, that you've got the, the Easter egg was the, I guess the, the shirt that he wore, like it's yeah. a red shirt with a phaser.
3: Yeah. Right. Yeah, because he was a security officer on, on the original ship. And so, yeah, he's so David Garovic is, is an ensign in one episode of the original series. He uh, goes on this mission with Kirk. And at one point, they encounter the bad guys and he can't pull the phaser trigger. And then the thing ends up killing a couple people. And then he blames himself. But in the end, it turns out that they were preventing him from pulling the trigger. And anyway, there's a whole story there uh, from the original series but we never really saw that character again. It was basically just like a one-off character to advance the plot, work alongside the the stars of the show and he sort of disappeared from there. Here we're picking up his thread with, you know, he was on a mission in the Galileo, he crash-landed on this planet and then his story sort of takes over from there and this is where we sort of pick him up. So it it's a real deep cut. It's like I I, you know, I consider myself a pretty pretty good Trek fan and I was like, "No, like I, I didn't get that, but it's a good way to tie it into the original series and have some fun with with the original series stuff, and just give again if if we if we understand the show to be Starter Trek, then it's a good way to sort of capture some of the whimsy of the original series and give you a sense of just that type. Of, like, this felt like a TOS episode, right? Yeah. Well, even even the
2: part where they when they get them to drive the drive the Pro star, they had to make the consoles look like the
1: TOS. Yeah. consoles yeah the star flight um with strong galaxy quest vibes for me of you know they made they made the ship as as what they saw on the show kind of thing not exactly the same but spiritually that's what i mean like i thought i thought they were going to the, the the plot would have going to be that they had caught the transmissions from earth on the tv mm-hmm. tv show right so but they didn't they didn't go there so my best pew 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 was the aliens piling the protostar to save the gang who are on the Galileo.
3: That's uh, timely with what you're all talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, my big question, I, I have to, I had to put this in. I'm doubling down on your puns uh, for for Murph. Uh, what's up with the metamorphosis?
1: <laughs> that's a that's a good one because my, my big question was, you know, is Murph metamorphic metamorphizing into like a gremlin or something? Because it kinda looked like that uh weird, sticky pod like you get in gremlins. It's the yeah. wrong color, but it's also creepy and like what the heck just happened to this cute creature.
3: I was waiting when when Murph was sort of lying on its side and breathing weirdly, I thought, oh, is Murph gonna have baby murphs or something? Like that because again, obviously It could be a genderless species that can uh, asexually reproduce, or something. You never know, right? But yeah, to have it turn out to be this this sack nailed to the wall was kind of kind of weird and interesting. And uh, yeah, again, I was like, metamorphosis. Nope, metamorphosis. There we go. (laughs) Uh, Quote best quote had to be live logs and proper.
2: Yeah, I thought they were saying lift logs
3: and proper. Oh, that would have been better. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. Yeah, there was
1: subtitles on.
2: No, it was, it was, you're right. It was live, it was live logs in, in that, in the subtitles mm-hmm. that said live log. They went back and re yeah. and oh watched my, it Yeah,
3: there was just, there was so much fun riffing on, on the original series stuff. But yeah, it was, again, it was a weird episode. Definitely, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know. Prodigy is by, is by a measure my least favorite of the, the current Star Trek content, just because it is obviously, it's not aimed at an adult audience. It, it's sort of ancillary for us um it definitely has its moments there's certainly lots of, lots of things to like about it i like the fact that they're bringing in the voyager cast and and some of the the delta quadrant stuff which is cool cuz i was a fan of that series but it can be a little puerile and i found these first three episodes to be a little little meandering a little bit um a, li- a little bit lower audience aim than i than i would prefer but i i understand that's that they're not going for me and that's fine
1: yeah it is definitely a show that is meant to be cross-generational that is, you know, the kiddos' first Star Trek. They're, they're new, they don't know all the lore, but it has extra lore elements for their parents who should be around the right age to have seen Voyager, which is kind of a an interesting one. So it's not surprising that the content itself uh, is presented in a more child-friendly way. Um, what I find interesting is the extra stuff they add of like, oh yeah, like we just mentioned the Janeway is a coffee drinker, um, you, know, you know? Who the heck is this Chakotay person? Like a kid might ask. Be like, "Well, let me tell you, son. I've got this whole series of stuff we could watch. You know, <laughs> Let me tell you, daughter, that uh, you'll you'll learn that uh, that he ended up with some some other people who had some interesting thoughts about uh, you know their their rights." And it is also interesting to me that the the intro theme song. To me is probably in my opinion, the best one like it really slaps for modern uh, trek shows mm-hmm. and I don't understand yeah, why it's not a more you know traditional kids one it is like you you put it over the top of any of the other new trek shows and it probably works maybe not beat for beat, but I'm like, man it like really slaps why isn't it more like uh SpongeBob or 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 just like a, a toned down simplistic a TOS homage or something like there's there's something there I think that was meant to to be more of a hook for the parents to watch with the kids and not just say mm-hmm. oh this is the Nickelodeon uh, Star Trek I I think that's what they're trying to to do and I think some of the things that we're talking about here are where they're falling a little bit short of of hitting the mark but it does seem like that is the mark that they're going for mm.
3: yeah
2: no I think it's true all right let's move on to Endor we got a couple mm-hmm. episodes to cover here the first one
1: is Episode nine, nobody's listening, and then the last one is one way out. Mine is not very good for the episode nine. That is, uh, Bix gets interrogated while Andor plots an escape. It's kind of on the surface what happens,
3: yep. I guess. If you if you sum it yep. all up. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, I had cast and crew discover the hard way they truly have nothing left to lose, and the pacing of that I think was exquisite i mean this is an incredible television show and we'll i'm sure get into this but um the way they build the drama of them sort of piecing together what's happening inside the prison and and getting little snippets of information and and just sort of how the the you know paranoia mixed with you know the desire for the truth mixed with you know fear uh, it was just it was really 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 well done no, I was going to say the buildup of the build up of the relationship
2: between Andy Circus and, and, um, Cassian Endor's character or Ca- Cassian Endor he, is that, you know, they starting off with like him eventually convincing, um, Kino, Kino what's his boy. name, Tylo, the convincing him that, that this is a, 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 a dead process and they should, they should probably move on from it. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was a uh, really interesting. I, I like the whole concept of the, of the prison and the way it worked and. Yeah, and then he's, like, you know, because this is the second episode where we've seen him in the present, right? And and he's starting to realize that, that the infrastructure isn't really there. Like, remember I said when I when they first got on there, I was like, I thought he was going to, like, grab, like, the weapon and take out the four guys in the room and then escape, right? Yeah. Like, it, it seemed to me like there
3: weren't a lot of guards, right? Well, because clearly they thought that there's the Imperial strategy of, well, we'll just electrify the floors and kill people if they're going to become a problem they thought that that was plenty enough so they could just staff it with minimal staff right mhm yeah the the floor is lava is sort of the concept of their their imprisonment
1: right that uh, everybody who is a guard has a huge advantage that 30 50 100 people at once can be taken out uh permanently or otherwise uh, with with just a flick of a switch
3: yeah 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 the um the best pew 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 I had was that first scene with Dedra and Bix uh, because it was intense. That was as intense a scene as I think I've ever seen in anything Star, Star Wars. That scene where she knows she's going to be tortured, Dedra knows she's going to torture her, and they just are, are, you know, Dedra is just trying to scare the pants off of Bix and it's working. Uh, and then following that up with, with uh, Dr. Gorst. Talking about, in the most casual, lighthearted manner, what he's about to do to her, that was utterly chilling stuff. You know, we're going to make you listen to recorded screams of children as they die until you crack. Like,
0: whoa, <laughs>
3: whoa, <laughs> that is intense. Like, this is not uh yub-yub, this is something else, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was my you know. big
1: question, which was, "What must those alien death recordings sound like?" Because uh, oh yeah, it, it is pretty intense. Uh, we can tell from the reaction of Bix after she's gone through the torture.
3: It did make me wonder too, and I guess this is a, a, I have another big question, but this is a, a good follow up to yours. So we obviously we see a different type of you know droid torture that Princess Leia goes through in uh, Episode Four. You know, it has a needle attached to it. Obviously, there's supposed to be some sort of, you know, truth serumy kind of component to it or whatever. When or why did they stop using this? Because it seems pretty damn effective. They use it three times. They use it on, on uh, I can't recall the other character's name that's tortured before her. They use it on Bix. It breaks Bix. They use it on the Rebel pilot that they, they mentioned capturing later on. And it works on him. I keep thinking, like, why didn't they just always use this? We, we know conclusion. that Leia is supposed to be strong-minded and everything, but like this is breaking people in half. Yeah,
2: Le- Leia has obviously been trained as as a as a royal, uh, or even as a rebel leader. She would have been she would have gone through some some training to sort of withstand this
3: stuff. Right? Yeah, well, and I guess the idea that we're supposed to look at it retroactively as well. She had the force on her side, and who knows? But but uh, yeah, this seems seems pretty darn effective. You know, like
2: uh, for my well, even, even the one that. Yeah, I was going to say even the one that um, Kylo
3: Ren uses on, um, yeah. on Ray and uh, Poe, yep. right? My big question relates to one of the subplots in this episode, which is uh, uh, Cyril Karn, who uh, is now a stalker on top of all the other weird stuff that he does, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, where he basically tracks down Dedra outside of the ISB headquarters to thank her for promoting him and she says well i had nothing to do with it but i think the idea might be that she helped clear his name and therefore he could get a promotion so however Mm. that plays but uh, my big question was uh does dedra hire cyril or does he go rogue and uh Mm. you know try and track down Cass on his own is he gonna end up working at isb or is he gonna try and do his own thing he was talking like uh, the Unabomber in this last episode. Like, yeah, you know. Yeah.
2: yeah and it's, that's very much like the, I know the movie you haven't seen yet called The Joker, but very, very much like that. Or, or you know, the, the King of Comedy. What's the one where, yep. I think it's not the one where the, he gets kidnapped yep. by a superfan sort of thing. Um, that, I mean, that, uh, if that's the, if that's the personality profile of Cyril, he's, he's never, they're never going to hive him in, in the, um, in the, uh, what do ISB, you call it? yeah. Yeah, he's like he's obviously not got the because I'm sure they probably have to have a very high you know psychological profile to be you know selected into that. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and and it's kind of I love her reaction to it too, like that you know next time I see you you'll be dead kind of thing because yeah I don't put up with this stuff or or is she just got such a strong shield? I mean she's a really really strong character, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I saw her I saw the actress being interviewed the other day. I forget what she said, but yeah, she was talking about this 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 particular role that she's got.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's a great role because they pivot so beautifully between you kind of rooting against the patriarchy and and sort of sort of rooting for her to to you know, get her just Do and then you realize what you've been doing is rooting for somebody who is a monster and is not above like torturing and killing and all this stuff, and you're like, wait, no, but what? Wait, but that's what makes great villains, right? Is that that sort of like, oh, I kinda see your point. You know, like what she's thinking is these people are are trying to mess with the established government and the, the you know, law enforcement and everything else. So in her mind, she's doing her job to the best of her ability, although you have to ask yourself if your job involves like uh, murdering people and planting their bodies and stuff that maybe you're probably on the wrong side of things, but it's interesting. It's just a really complex and interesting character. One of the better villains they've had. I, uh, I thought this episode was packed with great quotes. Uh, You know, Cassian we're cheaper than droids and easier to replace. That's a pretty brutal summary of where they're at. Um, uh, Karn's mom, who again, steals every scene she's in. Uh, imagine I'd cracked under the weight of your neglect. Oh, beautifully written. Um, Vel, uh, in in talking to Mon Mothma, we get to find out in this episode that Vel is actually related to Mon Mothma. We were wondering what her backstory was. We get that here. Uh, we've chosen a side, we're making that way. Wait, around. did you pick, did you predict that? Or did you go, just gotta know? I did not predict she was related to Mon Mothma, no. I, I knew that she was going to have a connection. I thought maybe she was L- Luthen's daughter or some something like that. Oh, I thought okay, that okay. she she had right. to have had a connection somewhere in there mm-hmm. to be entrusted with leading that mission and everything. I thought she had to be connected somehow. I, I didn't predict that it was going to be Mon Mothma, so that's interesting. Um, and then I think the winning quote from this episode mm-hmm. was, I want what you want. I sense it. I know it. That's Cyril to Dedra. That's the creepiest thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> yeah.
2: He's using the
3: force on her, oh, exactly. Yeah. that is like, oh, yeah. And she's like, you know, you do realize I could have you arrested. I could have you, you know, killed on the spot. Like, I would have gone with that impulse. That's some creepy, creepy stuff to say to somebody, let alone a woman. Like, that is creepy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but But man, what a, again, what another great Paste episode the the way they build the tension inside the prison you know they're, they're trying to figure out you know they have this you know power surge they're trying to figure out what happened and then they start to piece it together and they're using the hand signals and ratcheting up the tension this show's so good at just cooking like putting it on a simmer and just watching the water boil it's so good at that and yeah. you know the, the pot boiler on this one when it finally blows over and they realize like oh we're not getting out of here are we like this is this is where we're gonna work till we die or they're just gonna transfer somewhere else to work till we die uh that moment mm-hmm. that the the look on Andy Circus's face is Kino Loy where he's just like it clicks in for him he's like I did everything right everything I was supposed to do and it didn't matter I'm I'm still gonna die here just like everybody else is just priceless yeah. priceless yeah there wasn't really like
1: a pew 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 in this episode so my Sort of no. moral equivalent was the tenseness of the putting down of the old man, right? That that oh, was yeah. like really tense because the guard's like, hurry up, like, I'm going to shoot you guys or, or Fry or whatever it was he was going to do. If you don't hurry it up, just, you know, be done with it. And them realizing that uh, the doctors got that critical information of like, we nobody's getting out. That's, that's why they, uh, they had that weird
3: event that happened that nobody knew what was going on. Mm hmm. The only other thing we should just uh circle because we're gonna circle back to it for the next episode is the Mon Mothma plot line where she meets with uh her, her banker friend again and they talk about the fact that, you know, they may have to take less legal routes to try and uh try and get the money that they need into circulation and yeah. um so they're basically he's gonna set up a meeting with her and essentially a crime lord, right? I haven't heard somebody be called a thug in a long time. It's a you great know? word. When she, yeah, she
2: says he's a thug. It, it, it wraps it all up in one yep. sentence, right? Or one word, actually. Yep.
3: Yeah, yeah. You you know what kind of person you're dealing with, right there. Yeah. So in the one way out, which that's the
2: that's my one my elevator pitch. There's only one way out. Yeah. Um, in that episode, we find out what the what why the the daughters in the story, and and it turns out that this thug wants his part of his deal is to have. The thug marry his da- his son. Like the daughter marry his son, yeah. and then he, then he'll have a strategic alliance with Mon Mothma, yeah. right? So, and she's like,
3: "I'm not even thinking about that." And he goes, "As a matter of fact, you yeah, are." Yeah, that's the first <laughs> lie you've told. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, her th- her thread is getting obviously it's taking a backseat, but but her performance is wonderful, and the intrigue of that part of the rebellion, the way they're they're layering these stories over top of each other, is is really interesting. Obviously, this episode, the the thing that's going to be most memorable is is the jailbreak. But there's there's so many other scenes in here that are just terrific. Yeah. Well, that's the whole purpose of this this episode is that
2: they've they've after seeing the fact that that um the you know the, the, after the the um, old man dies and they realize you know having that they're not going to get it like the thing who's the it? Medic, doctor tells yeah. them tells them that. Yeah somebody says that they let somebody go and then he turned up on another yeah, floor yeah. he
3: was released from level four and shows up on level two or vice versa and basically they're like oh yeah, yeah it they are never gonna let us out of here and they end up having to kill and that's why they kill the entire, the entire floor, floor. Of yeah entire they, floor full of people 100 men get killed because they realize like they have to nix this and, and then of course the information gets out oh so, and then
2: you know we find out what cassian's been doing in the bathroom is he's been cutting the pipe to short out the the floor right so as part of their, their plan to get out, yeah, yeah, yeah. The best episode yeah,
1: was, was the it, prison
3: break that was set up by all of oh, what yeah. they were doing there, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. It um, it's funny. I the episode where they they do the 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 heist for me was the best episode so far of the season until I watched this episode. This was incredible. Mm-hmm. This was incredible. The way that they paced it, the the tension. You know, are they are they, you know, I mean, we knew that in some way Cass at least Cass and Elsie were gonna get out, but how the how, the how it's executed, the tension in, you know, is their plan gonna work first crack, you know, who of their crew that you know and again, they did they did it the right way, right? They gave us three episodes of slow burn to get up to it so that we actually care, you know, who on their crew that's working on their table is gonna make it out, and you know, is is Kino gonna, you know, do the right thing and then you know, they give Andy Serkis this great speech in the middle of it where he, he grabs the, the comm center microphone and basically rallies yeah. all the prisoners to, to you know, work their way to the surface. It, it was so good. It was such good TV.
2: So there's only one question I have from this entire episode. Hmm. Why don't they get these prison guards to put on stormtrooper outfits? Because they're the only ones that can shoot to kill <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wasted yeah, talent just yeah. off
3: somewhere in some ocean planet. Random prisoner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although that being said, they were essentially fish in a barrel. Yeah. The guys were throwing things at them, but like, all you gotta do is just keep pulling the trigger, right? Like you just keep pulling the trigger. You're going to hit somebody somewhere or hit, you know, make them duck for cover or whatever. They, they still were pretty terrible. But, uh, yeah,
2: well, but, yeah, but, no. but I mean, if you think about it though, like if you got, I don't know how many people were supposed to be on the floor, like a hundred people on a floor or whatever, like, or I guess it was 50 or I something. think it's like 50, that, right? yeah. I mean, yeah, 50 guys can, I mean, but that's, that's the whole nature of war is, is the whole calculus that you, you send a hundred people up against, you know, a bunch of guns and, not all of them are going to make it, right? I mean, that's the calculus, right? So yeah,
3: well, it's, but that's the thing. Drown them in blood, the right? You, 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 if you can't, if you can't kill your enemy directly, drown them in blood. You just just keep running them over. Then eventually, the blood will get so thick they won't be able to see the sky, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The Easter egg I thought was great was uh, when they do the pullout, because when we when they were flying into the prison, they were flying in sort of parallel to it, and so you never really saw the whole big picture. You got, like, part of the side, but you didn't get the whole thing. When they do the pullout, when they are working their way to the surface, and you see that the prison is in the shape of the uh, Empire logo, that was awesome. Yeah. yeah that was yeah, awesome. I was like, yeah. okay, shout out to the architects <laughs> at the Empire who were like, what if we made these horrible prisons where we work these people to death look just like the logo? Like, come on. That's awesome. <laughs> That's, that might be one of the most evil things done by the Empire. But yeah, that was, that was really good. Um, the quote of this one was, was the no-brainer. It's Cass's you know, line at the beginning that sort of inspires Kino and that Kino repeats later on. I'd rather die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want. I did, I did like I was, you know, we talked about what it is they could possibly be building there, right? Because they're building the same thing over and over and over again, could be Death Star parts could be, you know, parts for ad ads could be anything, right? I can't decide if I'm happy or sad, or if we're going to later on, or if it matters at all, what they were building, you know, like, you know, that it's obviously, it's nothing good if it's being built in a prison camp. Where they work, people to maybe, death.
2: maybe it's the targeting system for the Death Star because I mean, like, or the the gun thing because it 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 was it was obviously very important because I mean, that, it wasn't like make, they weren't like making license plates like they were. Yeah, yeah, it seemed to be a very important thing they were making. And maybe maybe it's like the targeting system for the Death Star or something like
3: you know. I mean, like the gun parts or whatever, right? I mean, it could be anything, right? Like it could be any part of of you know some part of the apparatus of war. I, 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 In the moment, I was like, oh, so they, you know, in the end of the episode, obviously, you know, not everybody makes it out, but, but the, a large number of them make it up to the surface and jump into the water and, and try and swim for shore. Uh, and we never find out what it is that they were doing there, or what the purpose of that place was. Maybe it'll circle back and we'll hear it before the end of this season or in the next season. Uh, maybe there's a reason why, you know, that or maybe it's just a MacGuffin. It was just that they had to make widgets because the Empire needs widgets. Uh, I, I'm not sure which, if I, if I'm disappointed or if it matters at all. And it, it, you know, it's just that they are going to make these guys make widgets until they die.
1: Yeah. I wonder if it'll yeah, be, no. uh, a, a plot point for the Andor series, some other series, or just an interesting, uh, background Easter egg in some future series, like the Ahsoka series or something. Right. Mm, you, you might yeah. say like, Oh, yeah. those are totally the th- like, look, if you just take off these little pieces, it's definitely what they were building there. Right. Same shape same number of uh, I don't know is almost like a like an octopus foot kind of thing mm. uh, if you describe it like that you know it's like a foot in the shape of an octopus is what it seemed like yeah
3: uh the other part of this episode that we haven't talked about is the the loosen of it where you know he gets this message passed to him by his assistant uh, that he needs to go have this meeting he wants a meeting and he ends up meeting with a one of the characters that we see working at the ISB, uh, uh, Lonnie Young, and we realize in that moment that he's a double agent, right? He's, he's working inside of the ISB and giving information back to Luthen to work for the rebels. And that's another terrific scene. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård's performance in that is unbelievable. The speech that he delivers at the end of the episode where you know, the, the double agent basically comes up and says, you know, hey, I, you know, can't do this anymore. I, I'm giving you a whole bunch of things. Here's here's what I know. Uh they're gonna kill this, they're gonna you know, kill uh, you know, this rebel mission. They're you know, they're setting people up, uh Dedra's onto this, they're looking for Axis, you know, all this different stuff. And um you know, Luthen basically is you know saying, "Well, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I can't do anything with information because I need you where you are. Fifty men isn't enough to save. In order to to lose an asset like you inside this place, which is really grim and dark. And you again, it's showing you a side of the rebellion that we we got tastes of it in in Rogue One for sure, especially Cass's portion of it. But you know, this is a level of darkness that is is pretty intense, where you realize like an entire rebel cell is about to get massacred and. Luthen is just okay with it. And and not happy with it, but he understands that's the price of doing business. And that's that's pretty dark. I mean, that's 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 pretty crazy dark. And when confronted with this information, of course, you know, uh Lonnie says to him, you know, well, you know, I'm sacrificing this. I'm having to hide, I'm having to put on this act every day, I'm worried about, you know, my wife and my family. Uh what have you done? And so then Stalin Skarsgard as Luthen gets to deliver this killer speech where he basically lays out how he's basically completely morally corrupted himself, that he's he's sacrificed his friendships, his integrity, that he's having to lower himself down into the muck with the Empire and use their tools to fight his war in order to to try and help other people have freedom. And it's incredible. It's such an incredible speech and a side of the rebellion that we never really talk about, that like yeah, there has to be people like Luthan who are making these incredibly hard choices and doing really, really dirty work in order to keep the gears moving forward to to the to the hopeful side of the rebellion, which we see represented by Princess Leia and Mon Mothma and all these other characters. I thought it was absolutely riveting. His 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 performance in that speech was really, 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 really good. It was an interesting one
1: for him and that he Sort of had the 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 Red Skull with the Soul st- uh, Stone saying like I lead others to a prize that I myself cannot have, uh, roughly speaking. That he's mm. like I'm I'm doing it for the betterment of the world or the galaxy, not because I'll be there to see it, but because I know it will be better. Is, uh how he seems to live his life, ob- obsessed with this question of how to how to deal with the Empire, even if he has to do things like let people. Go into an ambush so that the empire doesn't figure out that they've they've cracked it. Uh, not that yeah. not that different from like real world uh, World War Two stuff. Where after the British, and the Allies had cracked the Enigma machine from the the Nazis, they had to let some of the missions go completely bad, even if they knew it was going to be bad, so that it wasn't obvious that they had cracked the code. Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, it's 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 the high moral cost of war. Like you can't both be you know adhering to your strict morals of goodness and light and win a war and i think that's this is again this is the first time we've really gotten into the muck of that with the idea of star wars you know this is a war they're fighting right now it's not an open war like we see with the snow speeders versus the adats or the x-wings versus the tie fighters but lutin's fighting a war right now and He's fighting dirty because the enemy's fighting dirty, and it's awful, and it's ugly, and he's making horrible decisions that are costing people their lives, but he knows this is the only way to fight at this point. It's, again, it's really captivating television. Yeah, yeah. Um, for for
1: this episode, my big question is how will Cass get off the planet in the, the next few episodes? And somewhat related, since we never actually saw his demise, I'm hoping that... It, if not later this season, then sometime next season, there will be a somehow Kino returned sort of uh, thing that we'll say, uh,
3: we, know we can't swim. That doesn't okay. mean doesn't mean died. We didn't see him canonically die. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question you raised, though, Jaime. I mean, he, he gets to the precipice, obviously. He is fully invested on, like, we got to get out of here. One way out, one way out. That's the mission. And then you see all these men just being like, well, to hell with it. We're going into the water. And he's just standing there and he says, I can't swim. And Cass turns around and goes, what did you say? And then Cass gets knocked over the side by the rush of people coming out. Because so, you think, well, Cass would have tried to find a way to, to help Kino, but he can't, right? Like, there's nothing he can do. He gets knocked right off the precipice and that's it. Are we supposed to assume that Kino either stays there and helps everybody get out or that he just drowns himself like it's again it's an interesting you know or, or are we supposed to assume that he finds a, a different way out I, I i think those kind of questions are really interesting in this and and you know yeah Will we see Kino Loy again was was this it for his arc like that, that's that's i don't know what's more satisfying
2: cool let's move on to our watch list then what do you got for us Jaime?
1: mine is from adam savages tested on youtube where he got a chance to see one of the uh, Star Trek, the next generation uh, filming models in this case of an ambassador class starship, which is uh which is pretty neat seeing uh, what that looks like as a, as a model. And they're talking about, you know, what it takes to restore these kinds of things and get them operational. And how uh, there's even some questions of like, Oh, I wonder how they, how they mount, uh, they mounted this. And did they have more than one mounting point and stuff? So if you're, if you're into the the model makers type stuff, this is uh a pretty reverential one, and it's a pretty quick uh less than ten minutes sort of one. seems like it was uh up for auction, I think is the premise of mm-hmm. the thing so they have the the curator of that of that auction uh in the episode as well.
2: did you ever see the Star wars exhibit when it was when it was in Seattle I mean the star wars
1: exhibit twenty um yeah twenty eleven was that the one where they had like phantom Menace stuff too, like Queen Amadala's dress and stuff'cause I think I think I saw that. I remember seeing something like that.
2: Yeah, they had yeah, they had Amadella's white the white dress from the not from the first movie, from um the the one with um the pit where I think the third movie, right? But they had they had like the um this land speeder and they had um obviously C C-3, three C three PO was there, mm-hmm. but they had the Death Star, but they also had one of the um battle cruisers, like huge model, it's like seven feet long and you could see all the little lines which were actually just glued on with pieces of string. Oh, pretty cool.
3: I thought the coolest yeah, thing close. that you you took pictures of that when you were in Seattle was the um was the snowtroopers, right? the snow troopers you realize like oh, it's yeah. just kind of made with like duct tape and bailing wire. Like it's it's, it's these are like official uniforms. You're like, it's just kind of stuff that you'd find in a garage you know well
2: yeah cotton the cotton you know the cotton work gloves you get at the at the home at the hardware store to keep your hands clean when you're working in in dusty or dirty environments that's all they were and the the boots were just um i used to have a pair of them they're um they're like just regular boots that you could buy like uh uh, with steel toes in them right so yeah and then and you know then natalie portman's you know the white outfit that she's wearing in the in the pit scene where she's you know putting the she's doing the princess leia thing where she's like choking the the big creature with the chain and all that kind of stuff yeah um you know the, the scene where she and um diagnosis Dion- is that the planet genosis yeah yep. yeah that one there so the outfit that she's wearing and you see how small actually um Natalie Portman is, and it's literally like, yeah, Carol could have made that costume, like you know, of course Carol probably has made that costume, <laughs> but you know what I mean it wasn't wasn't anything like you know outstandingly amazing, right sort of thing when you see it in see it in real life, yeah,, hmm. cool, anyway, sorry, uh, oh me, I'm up next, um so the this is a video it's interesting called the Twenty things you did not know about Star Wars Rogue One it's just a it's a recent video, but um. It goes through, I found that it says 20 things that you didn't know, and that I found at least three of them were interesting. One was, I think, the, that um, Peter Cushing's uh, estate, his family, had a lot of say in how he was portrayed in the, in the when they basically made him, they CGI'd him, right? Um, the name of the planet, Scarif, came from, the the director, Gareth, went to Starbucks and ordered a coffee, and they didn't hear his name properly, and they wrote Scarif on the cup. <laughs> and that's how he... He decided to name the planet Scarab, um, so that some poor barista just you know lost out on a royalty thing there. I think, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So those are the two main things. But yeah, if you're into, if you're into, and it, it's one of these typical ones where they talk about you know the different actresses that were up for the role of uh, Rooney. Oh, and the other thing was that Galen um, Urso was obviously. I think I think everybody kind of knows this. He was he was based on Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah. Who yeah. who basically you know, created the atomic bomb and then regretted it the rest of his life sort of thing.
1: Yeah, that's
2: cool. And the show I'm watching now is, is The Peripheral. It just came out on Amazon Prime, I think. And it's, I think I'm about five episodes in. Um, it comes out on Fridays and it stars Chloe Grace Moretz. And uh, it's really good. It's, it's... um it's, it's sort of a VR uh, game. Well, like in, in this future world, you know, people are all wearing the sort of the, the visors and playing the games and stuff like that. And, and her brother's in the army and he's he's been retrofit with some augmentations and stuff like that. Um, and But he's got the PSD PSTD thing and, and all of his friends do too. But um, she obviously, she's a better gamer than he is. And he has her play the hard levels for him kind of thing, right? And he gets a job wearing this peripheral device to go into this, to basically go and beta test this peripheral. And it turns out that it transports you into um, another world kind of thing, like uh, uh, this whole sort of, you know, mission, sort of almost a bit like Intercept, um, uh, Intercept, inter- Inception, right? The you, mm. know, so you sort of think you're in a dream world. So she, it's, I don't want to give away too much but it 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 does actually draw you in pretty well and it's and it's well done, and you know sort of there's like negative effects it has on you for wearing the thing for a certain period of time and and she's particularly good at it and then and then of course, the people who are beta testing realize it's not him, it's her that's doing it, so they actually build a uh a device for her specifically right and uh, yeah, it's really good so i'm I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes sort of thing
3: how many episodes in are there? Yeah
2: um four or five right they come out on friday so hmm. i started watching i started watching unfortunately for me i started watching when there was three of them available so i watched the one two three right after the other and then then i'm like okay where's the rest of them right yeah so now i'm waiting i'm waiting till tomorrow for another one to drop right so hmm. maybe it'll drop at midnight who knows
3: mm. uh <laughs> yeah. amazon i believe does drop at midnight local time so oh, good to you, know you, you might good be in luck know. yeah well, you know what I'll be doing after the show, then. <laughs> yeah, um, I got a couple things. So uh, I had talked about this many months back in a, in an episode. Uh, I was excited for this book to come out. It's the Miracle Man Omnibus from Marvel Comics. Uh, it is a collection of the first uh, what would have been the first sixteen issues originally of the uh, the Miracle Man series in North America. It was originally released, uh, is serialized in a different way in the UK when it was first published in the early 1980s. This is one of the earliest Alan Moore comic books. Uh, it was sort of the thing that he did that kind of helped launch his career in North America and, and sort of made him this, uh, you know, now iconic, probably the most celebrated comic book author of all time. And uh, so the book is, it's got all of this beautiful art by all these incredible artists got these beautiful words put together by Alan Moore. Uh, It's, it's really an incredible package. The the premise of the book is that there is a sort of everyday working man, he works as a, a freelance reporter, he's doing odd jobs, and he is unaware of the fact that he is Secretly, this this super heroic Captain Marvel esque character called Miracle Man. Uh, one day, he's you know covering something. It goes south. Uh, there's a crime happens at the time. He gets uh, he rediscovers this magic word that helps him turn back into Miracle Man, and, he, and of course he he does this. But as Moore does, it's it's so much more depth than that. So the story continues, and and we, of course we find out that what he perceives as the truth is not necessarily the truth. And he learns more deep, you know, things about this sort of government conspiracy that's involved uh, around his creation. And uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's just a very beautifully written, thoughtful, smart, mature. uh, And again, gloriously illustrated artists in here, including Gary Leach, we talked about who passed away earlier this year. uh, Alan Davis, uh, John Totleben, uh, you know, just a who's who of, of mid 1980s and modern comics who worked on this. And the book, if it was just that would be totally worth spending the money on, but they really kind of went to the nines on this book as well and have put in just dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of, uh, the original scripts, original artwork, uh, background, uh a concept art just you know it's 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 the criterion collection DVD of of Miracle Man, basically. It's everything you could want in this sort of one-stop place. It is a, a really, really great, great collection. And uh I think it's I think it's supposed to retail for like hundred and twenty-five Canadian, but in typical, you know, you go online it's you know more like ninety bucks or something like that. You can find it cheaper if you go go around looking for it, but uh it's a great read. It's it's really, really an important book in the history of comics. And beyond that, it's just a great book to read. So I highly, highly recommend that one if you're if you're looking for something different or if you're interested in in, you know, grabbing a piece of of you know early Alan Moore, to sort of see where this this iconic writer started, it's uh yeah, well worth every penny you would spend on it, so get that okay. uh, The other one is uh, just a TV show that I'm a big fan of. Uh, my youngest son and I sat and watched the first season of Inside Job on Netflix when it first came out. This is a series uh, that is made by some of the people who worked on Gravity Falls, which is one of our favorite uh, modern Disney shows, uh, really smart subversive clever well-written uh a finite series cartoon uh inside job is is definitely much more mature it's it's got lots of adult humor and it uh it, it basically centers around this group that works inside the u.s government uh hiding all the conspiracies that we joke about that you read in like the national Enquirer or something like that uh they 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 are covering the fact that, you know, the, the president is a reptile and like all these different, you know, weird, uh, you know, conspiracy theory things. The aliens are among us and all this stuff. It's really funny. We laughed our butts off to the first season. It's full with great voice performances from lots and lots of really talented performers. And uh, the second season drops on the 17th of November. So I'm excited to see uh how much weirder and funnier and darker this series can get,' because it was a real laugh, and uh yeah, I like that one a lot,
1: cool, mm-hmm. if it's a part two that's coming out of what I think is the same season, that means it probably is bingeable fairly yeah. soon, yeah,
3: yep, yeah, 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 it's uh and of course, it's Netflix, right, so it is it's uh they dropped the first chunk of I think it' was ten episodes, and they're dropping another ten thirty minute episodes, so yeah, it's uh all right there for you,
2: all right, well, I guess that's it for another week, so. Hey, Jonathan, if people want to get in touch with you, why would they do
3: that? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at GPK News or YouTube as at jpk. Hey, and Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you. I'm on Twitter as at
2: dev of the hair. All right. Well, my name is Timitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A. So that's where you'll find me on Mastodon, at Timitra, <laughs> as well as, well as uh, on YouTube as at Timitra. And, uh, of course, if you really have to, you can find me on Twitter at the same handle. Yeah, same handle everywhere, pretty much. Until next time, we'll see you
1: in the future. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Spotcast Podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast, or see the episode show notes, visit the Spotcast website at spotcast.com. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at SpotCast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskSpotCast. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash You can find details on how to help us on our website, spotcastcom slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the future.
2: A guy named jay freeman who's who's uh, he's the guy who's behind all the jailbreaking of iphones and stuff um i think he runs a site he used to run a site called cydia which was like a where he was involved with it it was was where you found applications for unlocked phones um and he was he did a keynote talk at uh, 360 i in 2017 and he was talking about mastodon and how it was going to replace an alternative to twitter and uh, so yeah so a bunch of us signed up for it and now it's paying off. So Mastodon, you have to create basically a server group, right? And- no, no, no. Because the- you, know, you have the way the way it works is it's federated, right? You can you can create a server a server, and it's not that hard to do. But you basically become like the It's like a mailing list, I guess. You you create an instance, and then people can um, join you um, if they're like minded. But um, I joined the Mastodon social back in the day, um, and um, like, you know, they have a finite number of accounts, I guess, or whatever that they want to let in. Um, you can find free ones and you can find ones where you have to apply and get accepted kind of thing. So you, mm-hmm. can, you can find Mastodon servers that are like in your, like if you wanted to find a comic book one, you could probably find one or a, or a healthcare one, you could probably find one too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's federated. So instead of like everything, at Twitter, even though Twitter, Twitter is actually federated too, like it has a bunch of servers across the world. And you connect the closest one to you, but they're all connected to one major Uber database kind of thing, right? Mm. And it all, you know, the guys in California can see everything, right? Whereas if this is federated, kind of like the Bitcoin in in a sense, like you know, this server connects to that server, connects to the other server. So if Jaime had an account, which it appears he doesn't, I would still connect to him as at dev with the hair, at whatever server he's connected at, right? So it's you still connect to people by their handle, even though they may be on a different server, hmm. right? So you could sign up at JPK and be. You probably should hurry to do that, by the way. <laughs> but uh, or just be JPK News. No,
1: I tend to think of it as being like um, like email, where uh, since that is something that is federated as well, you could host your own email server. You could. Uh, you know, have an account on somebody else's. But practically speaking, most people tend to have uh, Gmail or Yahoo or like a Microsoft Mail Outlook account. So I think longer term, Mastodon will probably be uh, you know distributed and that anybody can set one up, just like Tim mentions. But for all intents and purposes, there probably will be, you know, three to five major like, oh, uh, you're on Mastodon.social. Oh, I'm on Mastodon.xyz or whatever is is what i think will happen if it uh, uh you know if it has uptake that is sustained given the the anger at twitter
2: yeah but but that said like it it seems to be that like for instance i work in a tech company right and very few people are even talking about you know they're talking about twitter and they're talking about what elon musk is doing and you know that kind of stuff but they're not all saying hey let's all run over to mastodon so even because you know, even when we joined in 2017, there was like a handful of people, you know. So, I mean, you can probably go back and find my posts. They go back to 2017, but there's like been 10 since I joined, right? Um, you know, I've probably, I probably did two this week, you know, and I've probably checked in on it, you know, a third of the time that I would check into Twitter or Facebook. But, you know, it, it hasn't, it hasn't really sort of, in my mind, it's not really taken off yet. So uh, it's a good time to get into it. Like if you want to grab a good handle, but, um, and, you know, I, I I might try running a server at some point, whatever, but, you know, having run email servers and web servers and stuff like that, it's way more work than it's worth, right?
3: Yeah. And it's it's tricky. I mean, I, I'm sure like every other social media manager uh, on earth right now, we were having discussions this week, you know, uh, up and down, working with my, my team and, and working with the organization, talking to other like organizations we have affiliations with, trying to figure out what... What are we supposed to do now that, you know, things are starting to get pretty challenging? There was a lot of examples this week of some Wild West craziness happening already uh, on the Twitter sphere, And it's it's made things very complicated for, you know, how do we do this? You know, we've got 40,000 followers. Do we just keep feeding it or do we close it down? Or like, what do you where are you supposed to go next? Right. You know, Obviously, uh, you know, I don't think we're ready to pull the plug yet, but those, you know, those are discussions that need to be had. Right. It's about reputational integrity.
2: Yeah. You could also do, you could also do things like, like, uh, I mean, there's obviously the, the Patreon route where you, you can have content that's only available to subscribers or payers. Right. Um, mm. or you could do, you could set up a discord server or like we were doing, we have a Slack server, as you know, for, for our podcast and stuff like that, where people can join. Um. And that way, you can have private conversations, and you can control who comes. The other thing about Mastodon is, unlike Twitter, is you can set up your profile in such a way that people have to have to be let into the group, right? They can, they can follow you; they can't follow you unless you let them in, sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So you could decide that you maybe that's a cautious, like for in your particular organization, that may be a way to do that, is you maybe decide, like you know you want to make sure that you have a chance to vet the people that are coming in right mm-hmm. so and then you could you know get the the riffraff out of the way right i don't know how if you have an issue with people on twitter as it is right but
3: yeah i mean it's not bad you know we we certainly do get you know occasionally there will be people who take uh you know we we do report health data on a lot of potentially contentious stuff you know we we don't necessarily go into the the vaccine of it all but we talk about a, you know some complex uh, health topics that, you know, certainly can attract, uh, 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 you know, a response from both sides of the, uh, of this political spectrum. And so, you know, we, we you know, uh, I, there was a great piece on, oh, I think it was Barstool Sports or someplace today where they were illustrating all of the uh, hijacked, accredited accounts for like LeBron James, for Peter Schefter, for, Twitter, for yep. Uh, because now, it, if anybody has eight bucks, you can be the verified owner of a name, right? So, well, did you
2: not did you not hear the the thing that happened last week? Last weekend, uh, Sarah Silverman yeah. changed her name to Elon Musk, and um, oh, that was Kathy Griffin. Yeah, Kathy Griffin did a bunch. Of, a bunch of people did,
3: like a bunch yeah. of people did. They, yeah, yeah. They, and they were they were advocating vote for the Democrats, which of course he's he's really not. He's a, he's a pretty hardcore Republican, so. Um, yeah so but so the thing is
2: like you know a couple of weeks ago he had said that comedy is now legal on Twitter, and then of course these
3: all these comedians did this to him, and then yeah. he kicked them off yeah mm-hmm. well because he said he said you have to clearly mark on your line that the, that your account is a parody account, and so if you don't mark it as a parody, then people could be taking it seriously and and but the thing is he's also adding the blue verified check mark to anybody who has eight bucks in their pocket and that just has led to, yeah, like a Wild West where people are, you know, somebody posted earlier this week, uh, a post from at LeBron James that was basically like, I'm leaving the Lakers uh, peace out. It's been a nice trip or whatever. And people were flipping out and, and retweeting it and everything else because, of course, it it looked vaguely official. Uh, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, the potential for malfeasance on here now is very high. It's not a walk in the park to get a blue check mark. You really oh, have to be a
2: legit person. Like, you know, um I've applied a few times and they kinda went, Yeah, right, you know, who are you? Yeah. And then if but if you look if you look online, if you Google my name, my name comes up like all over like a couple of pages with the Google stuff because I've been prolific with writing and, and blogging and stuff, right? Um but, you know, I don't know what it is that, that like like, you know, like journalists who are like doing this professionally, they generally get blue check mark right away right kind of thing right but uh yeah it's hard it's hard to say like like what the, but now he's kind of like these he's ruined it by by saying yeah give me eight bucks and i'll make you a blue check mark in fact a friend of mine did that today like he showed up today with his blue check mark, right you know like and and those like i'm sure Jaime's not going
3: to pay it i'm not going to pay it yeah That's we have I'm no intention of to paying it um yeah, I mean we have a white check mark. I don't know what the difference is, but we had to go through a lot of hoops just to get the white check mark which says it is verified because it's notable and government news entertainment or another designated this category. Guy, yeah, notable
2: government news entertainment or other designated category. So yeah, but how much can I pay twelve dollars to get a white one? Also, Jimmy Fallon's got a white one now. For now, there yeah, was the, know, the, the I gray marks
1: and then it, for like official, official, not you know, I just paid money, official. And then it's like it rolled back, and by the time this episode goes out, there might be I don't know a dodecahedron or something. Green as like
3: marks.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what's the point of having the white one? Like if if like all all the people who had blue ones are now white, it's almost as if or it, your product strategy should not be based on what I had in the burrito last night <laughs> as a as a mantra, right? That like, you know, sitting and thinking about it for more than, you know, burping it out is uh is a is a problem for uh the new owner.
2: So, so what is the point? Like of what's the point of having a blue check mark? Like why would why did he have to make it
1: blue? Why couldn't he choose like a different color? Idiot. The best part is how he wants to turn it's it into it, a, a banking and payments service. Which, you know, yeah. <laughs> makes sense, yeah. but like do you want this person doing that? I uh, have my doubts. Please, please
2: take my money. (laughs) The best quote I saw all week was was that, uh, you know, Elon Musk thinks he's, you know, that we're all stuck in here with him. But what he doesn't realize is
3: he's he's stuck in here with us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, when you have your, you know, keys to the kingdom and you can flush people down the toilet, it's it creates a pretty bad environment to be in. It's very destabilizing you know
2: he's supposed to be supposed to be about free speech and all that stuff that's why he bought it
3: right yeah and honestly i was more initially fearful that what was going to happen was that the loonies were going to start you know leaping in the windows and we were going to have a lot more you know hate speech and i'm sure that's coming but i was worried we were going to have a lot more hate speech that we would have to sort of filter out and and you know that kind of stuff i haven't seen that yet what seems to be happening is that that people who have Self-respect and common sense are like peace out. I don't want to do this anymore. And so, what might it might be in the end is just it's it's a parlor. Like I, I don't know. I don't know what this is going to be. So I went
2: to my friend's site just to follow up on that, and I think it's white because we're in dark mode. It's oh, blue, and blue. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because I went to his account, and and it does say he's he's verified because he's a subscribed to, to Twitter Blue is what it says. Mm-hmm. Whereas yours says, like way. you said, it's a government thing or whatever uh yeah so it's just a variation on whether it's dark mode Like, and again like twitter like you can't figure out dark mode and make the check marks remain blue yeah lighter blue or
3: something like that's bad bad css man yeah there's now a fake uh fake twitter for nintendo verified um yeah there's a lot of good ones in here uh, yeah, the LeBron one was uh, the the peak yesterday. Oh, uh, there was one for the said the Yankees had signed uh, this like pitcher for you know three years and you know sixty million dollars. Again, that one made it made a bunch of rounds. Like it's it, and it was a fake story. Yep, somebody created a, a quote unquote parody account and they got it verified. They spent the eight bucks and wow. yeah. So I mean. The tricky, really tricky part is that, you know, I mean, I came from a world where Twitter was the fastest place to break news. You know, that's what how we were using Twitter as journalists is it's immediate. You can get a big audience really fast, especially if you have a lot of followers uh, in a world where you don't know whether at Toronto Star is at Toronto Star or if at Toronto Star is a parody account, you're in deep problems because... It all comes back to integrity, right? It comes back to the the integrity of the name that you're putting behind these things. You know, obviously for a person like LeBron James, he's a brand as well as a human being. There's problems with messing with his brand, but when you're talking about you know the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know Globe and Mail, uh, you know big publications that have a reputation for uh, you know being factual and accurate and timely and everything else. If people start messing with those yeah. things, it can really damage those brands.
2: So one of the guys I follow on Twitter has got his handle as, it says his name is Morton, right? But he spelled he spells M-O-R-10, like the number 10. Mm. But his name is Morton. Is it, uh, a, um, what do you call it? He's from Denmark or something. But he's got his, his Twitter name as Morton10 at
3: Mastodon.social. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what I'm going to do? Yeah, a fr- friend of mine, very smart journalist, a uh, friend of mine uh, who is at comma underscore chameleon as uh, a journalist. TikTok is too young. Facebook is too old. Mastodon is too hard. Instagram isn't funny. Do we just stay here on Twitter and wait for the denouement of this dispiriting drama? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, again, I'm just looking through my, my feed quickly here. And there's, I, obviously, I follow a bunch of my journalistic friends, acquaintances and colleagues. And uh, yeah, one of them, again, comment is... Uh, so do we just have to move our follow lists to Mastodon? How do we do that? Like, it's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that I think that's the biggest challenge that I you know am kind of scared about is, you know, you spend a lot of time nurturing, you know, as a business, we've spent a lot of time nurturing an audience, growing an audience on these platforms, you know, when this started percolating and we, this, we, it wasn't just this week we started talking about, it, it was certainly, it was as soon as this came up as a possibility, the sale was... Did we just spend all this time and money to watch it just get washed away, like sand on a beach? Mm -hmm. that's mildly agonizing. I guess the question is, too, now that you've
2: you've mentioned this, is, like, so do I have to register at Tim Mitra at all the different
3: Mastodon servers out there? Well, in theory, it could be impossible because some of the Mastodons are are closed, aren't they? Like, you can create, like, closed-loop networks. So how could you? Yeah.
2: No. I. I think. I think the thing is that that. Um. I think. I think that that my handle is my handle on Mastodon, right?
3: Uh, like across the board.
2: Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah. If you go to Mastodon and and you search for my name like, at Tim Mitra, you'll find me right there, right? So, but I, I, the reason I know about the 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 lock thing is one of my friends is on is on uh, Mastodon, and I went to look for her, and I when I found her name. Um, and it's funny because she corrected the spelling on of her, her name on Mastodon, but it's incorrectly spelt on, on um, Twitter because I guess she couldn't get the name or whatever. But um, uh, when I joined, uh, when I went to follow her, she had to let me in. Hmm. So she, she gets to choose who follows her.
3: Yeah, which, I mean, obviously there's a, a a lot of value to that, but then that works well on a person-to-person basis. Does that work if you're... You know, uh, government agency, corporate entity, public figure, yeah. politician—you know—like it just becomes <clears throat> unwieldy.
2: Yeah, well, I got thirty-five followers so far. I'm following twenty-five. So,
3: do you know what their um their their um, user base is off the top of your head?
2: No idea. No, mm-hmm. I'm sure there. I'm sure there's articles on it. I, I posted I'm sure a couple of articles on
3: this last week or so.
2: And I posted a couple of articles on Twitter and on Facebook on on everything you ever want to know about mastodon sort of thing right it's not that hard it's not that hard to use it's just there are there are some things you some things you can do on mastodon that you you that aren't straightforward right yeah like you can verify your own self by putting a, a link on your website which i think is brilliant what uh which server did you say you're on you're on social i'm on i'm on um mastodon.social yeah you just try and sign
3: up I'm just taking a look at the... I, I had downloaded the app earlier this week, but I really hadn't had no time to get into it. It was a bit of a busy week. And, um,
2: well, and that's the other thing, too, is there's several apps right now that are vying for the... Meta. Metatext is another one that people are saying... Uh, yeah, I was looking about.
3: at Metatext as well, yeah.
2: But I'm, I, I was on something else initially, and then I moved over to the... Um, somebody just told me about the Mastodon app directly, and so I, I don't know if he's, if he's a developer or knows the developers, but um, I've been on it since then. And it's very. it looks like Twitter. It's like very similar
3: yeah it's funny because um there's certainly a lot of stuff on here and you're like having a tough time sorting through it all right you know like they've got these sort of general buckets that you can register for them there's like literally not one server related to health or health information or anything that would apply you know where Mm -hmm. you fall is it you know there's there isn't one sub you know sub folder or, or server for um even government or you know yeah
2: yeah weird. So why can't I find Mastodon.social? Well, hmm.
3: Yeah, I was just going to oh, look I for that one, game. and I don't see it. Oh, here we go, Mastodon.social. The original server operated by the Mastodon G. What's the what's the URL? I'm just is it HTTPS or something, or uh, I'm looking in the app. So registration closed. Server disallow registration is what I'm, the message that I'm getting across for Mastodon.social. Well, yeah, well, it's probably it probably because we were all early adopters, right? So, yeah, so it won't let you in there. So you, yeah, I guess I'll have to find a different path. But um, yeah, I just well, I just joined. Uh,
2: so more than just more than just code, I just joined on another. Let me just see what I went done that one did. that one that, where, how I joined on that one. Um, but I wasn't sure if I'm supposed to bring over like MTJC, and so I'm on universodon. dot com.
3: So it's like universe odon. Oh yeah, I see that one. So some of these are already growing. Like that's got eleven thousand people involved in it. Some of these ones, like um, mass.to To, is a hundred thousand people on it. Mm-hmm. That's that's the question. Is again, if these are all subdivided, if it's not one giant community like theoretically Twitter is, is you know how do you do this? It's, a Mastodon JP has got two hundred thirty-five thousand uh, maintained by Suji Tech. Yeah, so that's that's the thing is is how do you reach the maximum number of people mm-hmm. with information you want to disseminate if it's all subdivided like this? That's the real question. Like how how will this as a yeah. platform evolve to meet that kind of need? Yeah, and how fast? I mean,
2: well, here's something. Here's something you'll appreciate, Jaime. I posted yesterday. What's in your refrigerator? Remember that one? I mean, no, I don't. From Periscope. When Periscope first started up, everybody wanted to know what was in your your refrigerator. That was one of the memes.
1: I used Periscope back in the day. I didn't realize I missed out on that meme. Apparently, for that part of the culture,
2: mm. we talked about it on the podcast when we first when we first like when I first talked about it, it was I think it was my pick on the show, right? The refrigerator
1: meme specifically, because I,
2: yeah, I don't what's in what's in your refrigerator. People were po- on, on Periscope in the early days. People were posting. um... Oh wait! I'm, I'm watching this Peppa Pig thing you posted. Yep, Mastodon.
3: Yeah, well, it's gonna be uh it's gonna be an interesting path. Again, I I am discouraged. As I say, it's it's been. Yeah, I mean, does it matter at that point where you register that? Like,
2: no. I, like I said, I've got a I've got on my account. I've got a a list of um. You like a you a whole bunch of you know frequently asked questions. Hmm. The unofficial guide to Mastodon, how to use the new social media, ten quick tips, futurist,
3: futuristic guide to Mastodon. Yeah, the um the Times posted a big article this about it this week, saying here's the yeah. here's the what you need to know about it, basically running it yeah. through. Um, yeah, but it was again complex. It was not straightforward at all because it's just a different. Like on one hand, it's obviously it's a superior platform in the way that it's created. It's not um. Like it's open source I, I don't know.
2: I, th- I don't know if I would call it superior. I think it's I think it's. It's growing. It's going to change, obviously, over the next little while. But mm-hmm. like on the weekend, on the weekend, it was super slow because there were so many
3: people just setting up accounts, right? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And that's the thing is obviously people are, are disgruntled and they're frustrated and everything else. And they're looking for an alternative and they all want to do it at once. That, that's not yeah. how this is going to work, right? Like it's going to take some time for the marketplace to sort itself out. Um, yeah. but one thing's for sure is that the value of Twitter has certainly changed from the moment that they, uh, paid for, you know, this, you know, he's, he's already gone in and changed so much. He must have lost this market valuation must have gone down. Oh already.
2: yeah. Yeah. Like I said, he's, he's costed more than four to 44 million. So I said at the top of the show, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I got to, uh, call it a day. I think I got to go catch up on my, um, peripheral watching, right? My peripheral viewing. Yeah. Quite, quite possibly.
3: Again, I, I, I discovered that after we would finish signing off, I could go and watch Lord of the Rings on Thursday nights. Oh, really? Turning into Friday mornings. But no, we're not going to need to worry about that until <laughs> sometime in 2024. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All righty, then. All <laughs> right, boys. Good to talk to you. Until next time. Ciao. All right. Yeah,
0: bye. Tip Later. Bye.